Welcome back to This Is Hardcore Podcast. You just heard Live It Down, the track Paver Nocturnus, or Sleep Terrors, Night Terrors, one of those two. This is coming out, or it's out now, debut 7-inch, available, Triple B and Bobby Wilson via Rebirth Records, the fucking collab. You know shit's getting real when... You know, Triple B's got to start collabing with that Rebirth shit. But Bob Wilson is the fucking king of finding the bands out there that are ripping ass before anybody else will ever fucking know about it. I remember seeing them for the first time in Philly and was just fucking mind-blown. Absolutely pure, 100% holy terror fucking hardcore from Cleveland, Ohio. And they no one does it better than them. They actually probably do it better than the guys who started it right now. This shit is a fucking ripper. And, um... It came out a little bit ago, I believe it did. I don't know if the vinyl's out yet or whatever, but um, I'm fucking excited for this band. Every time I see them, I think they get fucking better. And cool to see Bob with his Rebirth and Triple B working together. The, oh, the EP has the coolest name, Thy Kingdom Come. So check out some evil fucking pure, unadulterated, metallic hardcore. We've been on a roll with these fucking podcasts. I have not been great with my notes, but we've been on a fucking roll. Next week is three shows in a row, and uh, specifically with our guest tonight, Rob Beto Rosario. I can't fuck up his kid's show announcement. (laughs) Can I? I probably will because I'm fucking retarded. Uh, Bankrupt, reaching out, 10 slugs, lasting dose. Thursday, at Bonks, be there. Jersey, reaching out. Beto will not be in the pit, but his kid, Caden Rosario, there's a young riffing lord in the making. The band's moving up. Going to go check them out. The following night, I don't know if by the time this is out, if the tickets will still be there, but June 23rd is Incendiary, Volcano, Simulacra, and Scarab and Underground Arts. If there's no tickets, I don't know. I had to record this a week or two early because I'm... Currently coming off of a crazy two weeks straight of just working my entire life. Uh, the following night is the Kev One Bulldoze Benefit at the First Unitarian Church. Again, these kind of things we end up in because that's how hardcore it's. Not everybody has, you know, has to get together. So we come together like family. We support our fucking own. We make this shit happen. Bulldoze in Shadow Realm, Freight Train. Bayway shot out one by one North Carolina and all shots over, which is members of the Nide from New York, pulling it together 4 p.m. at the First Unitarian Church. You can also go to TIAC Podcast. We're going to have a link for Kev One Bulldoze GoFundMe. His family had put out. Kevin had passed away shortly after the announcement for FYA and Keystone Jam. And so to honor his memory, get his family a little scrawl, we're putting this little thing together. Make sure that you. Do your best to support Bulldoze, Kev One, his family. It's a it's a tragedy because the shows that Bulldoze have been playing have been absolutely beyond anything I ever seen previous Bulldoze and ever before. This is a high mortar mark of young kids being into shit like Bulldoze. And it's sad to see that he is not with us to see it. Uh, July is going to be fucking hot. 
So Bob's a dickhead and does these insane shows. Never and again, gridiron, laid to rest, strength for reason, division of mind. Sunday, July 2nd, hot, hot show at the First Unitarian Church. It's going to be a fucking wild one. Then, this is another one he's got going on. Spine, struck nerve, destiny bond, disjoined at Bonk's Bar, July 15th. He's got shows up and down. You can find them all at the phillyhcshows.com. And um, all of our shows are via social media, Philly HC Shows at Instagram and Twitter. You can also go to the .com for ticket links, etc., etc. Um, I'm going to go right into it because this is a fucking really long show. Rob Rosaro, a.k.a. Beto, is a super important, impactful guitarist from the New York hardcore scene. For those of you who are like, I don't really know who this guy is. Um, from the time he would be in Demise... As a teenager, then he would roll his way into 25 to Life and Marauder, and then later Manball. His his viewpoint, his perspective, his lived experiences are fantastic. I loved his perspective on everything, and he and I have been friends for years. In fact, the last couple FYAs or anytime we ended up running into each other, we just talked for hours at shows, and I ask him a lot of questions that ended up on this very podcast. Um, absolutely fantastic story, great outlook, no regrets, which is such a cool, positive thing from a guy who's seen a lot of crazy shit. And I really hope you enjoy this one. It's one of my favorite ones. Not that every week I don't really enjoy it. In fact, to be completely honest, I really enjoy any time I get to have a conversation about hardcore shit with people who I respect. But a lot of the stuff with 25 to Life and, and this specific group of bands really was a really exciting time for me as a teenager, so it was cool to hear him speak his perspective on it. So, let's fucking go. Welcome to the show, none other than Beto Rob Rosaro. I could go on and say so many different things about him uh, for being a young kid and watching his bands uh, throughout, I think from the time I was like 15 to like 17, 18 and then later he would come around our like, friend group because he was dating a, a girl we were friends with. And uh, what are we talking about? 20-something years later, you are married to the same woman still. You guys have amazing kids, and your kids have actually been on the podcast before you. So welcome to the show. Time flies, brother. Time flies, <laughs> man. Now he's playing his own shows. <laughs> it's so fucking awesome. What's so cool is uh, I remember when you first did the 25 Delay stuff again, and they were like little, little, and then now look at them. You know, they're out there doing it. It's fucking crazy. I know. And Caden says that that's what made him decide he wanted to do hardcore, which is crazy. I just wanted to, you know, I wanted him to see his dad doing some cool stuff. Meanwhile, he's sitting back there behind the amp going, I could do this. <laughs> uh, and dude, and look at him now, man. It's fucking absolutely fantastic. I know. I'm proud of him. So I want to start this at your childhood, at your beginning, the stuff around you, where you're from, the music that was in your household, and then we'll kind of take those steps from there. Definitely, definitely. So in, in my household, it was all merengue, bro. I'm Dominican. So Fuck yeah. <laughs> that, that's all I heard. You know, every Saturday morning, my mom, you know, throw on the merengue and stuff. She's cleaning the house. Um, but, you know, mainly my choice when I was young, I grew up on hip hop. You know, that's what I like. 
when um, around 1984, when I went to middle school, um, I ended up in a class with Hoya. You know, yeah, you guys are all from the same part of Queens, right? Yeah, we're from the same part. We're both from Corona. We both lived in Corona, but in different parts. So, um, you know, funny story is, is that uh, we knew each other from school and my parents were relocating me. You know, they we, we moved to a new house. And uh, I tell Hoy, I was like, yo, listen, uh, I moved. You, you know, you want to take a walk? Let's check out my new place. So I hadn't even seen it yet. Um, my mom gives me the address. I walk up to the place and he goes, where do you live? I go right here. He goes, oh, shit. I live right across the street. Oh, shit. You know, so it, it was crazy. This was like 1984. You know what I mean? So um, what ends up happening is since he's right across the street, I'm, you know, I'm ha- of course, I'm hanging out at his house all the time. And uh, his older brother, Dave, was big into big into metal, big into hardcore back then, punk. And um, that's how I got introduced to it. That's how he got introduced to it, too. I heard Dave put everybody in the area onto it. Everybody. Yeah. Him and then Rob Echeverria from Rest in Peace has also lived down the block from us. So it was like, you know, you had a bunch of guys at Corona that, that listen to hardcore. And, uh, you know, we we learned from from them, you know, from the older heads. I would have never known about, you know, Agnostic Front or the Cro-Mags if it wasn't for Dave. You know, that's for sure. I always wondered, and I, and I, I mean, obviously with Dave passing, we'll never really get it to figure out because there's so many. I mean, obviously there's different eras. You know, the mob was from the Queens. You know, there's all these different guys in New York hardcore from Queens, from Token Entry guys, the Sib, you know, like – yeah. But you're all in different parts, but I've always wanted to know how a bunch of, you know, Dominican and Puerto Ricans found fucking New York hardcore being where you got like how far away you guys actually were from the city. Like, you know, like the, the LES section where like the hardcore shows were going on, yeah. you know, you know what it is like in New York. I mean, same thing in Philly. You know, we grew up in the boroughs, but but transportation was easy. So, you know, we jump on a bus, we jump on a train. And uh, and automatically, you know, we could get to the Lower East Side. But, you know, we were traveling while we were skateboarders anyway. So when we were before we were really into into hardcore or going to hardcore shows, we were skating all over Brooklyn, all over Manhattan. So when it came down to to going to shows, because um, I want to say we started going to CVs when we were around 13. That was like 1986. And um, it was tough to get in because you're supposed to be 16. So it was like kind of keep trying until Hilly lets you in there. Um, (laughs) And um, but by that time was we knew where we were going. So being that we, you know, through skateboarding, we became familiar with with the New York area. um, It was easy once we wanted to start going to hardcore shows to say, hey, I'm going to jump on the seven train. Then I'm going to jump on the E train or the R train and go to the show. What was that like? 30 something minutes? Yeah, just about. Yeah, it, it's pretty damn quick. Nutty thing is, I tell my mom I'm going to across the street. Hold on one sec, bro. All good. Dog. Yeah, so I tell my moms that I'm, you know, going across the street. Meanwhile, I'm going to CB's. Yeah, she or don't know the, the difference. Yeah, it's crazy, man. Well, I like, you know, if Caden did that to me, I'd probably be pissed. <laughs> <laughs> but then you'd be like, fuck it. You know, I did the same thing at the same time, right? Yeah, well, that's what I tell myself sometimes when I start getting mad. I'm like, man, I was worse. <laughs> well, that's the thing. Also, it, it, it's hard for people who are younger to understand this. In the 1980s, there wasn't this captive audience in the house shit. There was your parents going, get the fuck out of the house. 
Yeah, like, exactly. I don't want to see. I don't want to see you back till dinner time, and I don't want to see you back till the streetlights yeah. are on again. And, and that's something that younger kids may not be able to reflect on is that we were the ones that were told, "What are you still in the house for?" Yeah, you know, like you know, it, where it's completely the opposite now. You can't get half these kids out of the computer to, to get outside yeah. the house. Yeah, the parents weren't involved back in the day. I mean, you know, it was like, all right, you left the house, and the parents were happy, and you come back whenever. I mean, bro, honestly. You know, it got to a point sometimes that I wouldn't come home. You know, uh, I'd stay over at my friend's house or something. There's a awkward show or something. I'd stay over, come back the next day, and my mom would start screaming. <laughs> and then, you know, everything would be all right. But, you know, again, it was different times, man. We grew up a lot differently than kids are growing up today. Now, um, with phones and everything, you know, uh, it, it's hard to tell your parents, hey, I couldn't find the phone to call you, which is what I used to say. Hey, mom, yeah. I was on the phone. You know, you can't get away with that shit no more. Absolutely. Absolutely. No way. You can't call collect. There's no, you know, there's no lies now, yeah. you know? Yeah. Now, when you're thinking about when Dave's bringing you around this stuff, you obviously from, from, from skateboard on, you knew what heavy metal and all, but did you, did you kind of put your finger on it that hardcore was a little bit different or was it to you kind of all meshed in with punk and metal and everything else kind of all going around? I knew, I knew it was different. Like, you know, of course, you know, I was uh, I got into metal first, you know, uh, Metallica, stuff like that, a Black Sabbath and all that. Um, but what was cool with hardcore was that, you know, Dave would say to us, oh, you know, my friend's got a band. I think the first one he mentioned might have been Rob being in straight ahead, you know, and uh, and I would see Rob going to band practice, walking up Junction Boulevard. And I'd be like, you know, that's cool, man. I'm like, there's people around here that play this hardcore music. I'm like, It, it made me interested in it because there's people doing it that I can relate to. You know what I'm saying? Um, soon after that, you know, like I remember when he mentioned sick of it all getting together and all of that. And, you know, eventually they would hook us up with, with a few of our first shows and we were doing demise. Um, and I think that making it relatable made me gravitate towards it um, in a way that I couldn't really do with metal because with metal, even though it's not like pop music, it, it it wasn't within reach. Like I really wasn't running into like these like artists that I was listening to, like guys like Metallica or, you know, I wasn't going to run into Tony Iommi or anybody like that, you know, but was that well, neighborhood, uh, did that neighborhood even have like long hairs or was it just kind of like you guys being the, the wild cards out there? It was us. It was um, Richie Sip that wasn't sick of it all. I believe he was there in Corona. Um, Rob, rest in pieces, Dave. Me, um, Hoya, you had a few other, you had MQ, MQ lived there, but he didn't have long hair, but you know, he was always into it too. Um, there was a few of us. Now you actually, you know, like I'll hear from like my cousins or other people that grew up there that they got into hardcore because they heard about us living there and, and playing it. So it, it kept going, you know, and there's people that get like, I have family members now that listen to hardcore. It's crazy. It's fucking awesome. It's a tradition yeah. now, you know? Yeah, because when I started playing it and listening to it, my parents thought I was crazy. You know, they were like, oh, why aren't you listening to merengue? And I'm like, I just don't feel it. I can't fake it. You know what I'm saying? With, with me, it was either hip hop or, or rock based music, you know, heavy rock or, you know, metal, hardcore, stuff like that. Punk. I, I went through the punk stage where I love punk, too. But I feel that the punk that that I listened to was almost hardcore, like exploited, discharged. GBA. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. You know what I mean? It, it wasn't like regular punk. That stuff was angry. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, especially especially those two examples. 
you know, yeah, they were really fucking the raw, aggressive, hardcore punk at that time, man. Yeah, exactly. It was it was basically like the evolution to hardcore. Now, was there any um, was there any close record stores in the area besides just like when you would travel down to the LES? Like, what stores were you hitting around there? Numbers in Jackson Heights. So that's uh, shit. I think that's where we met Isaac. <laughs> well, that's what I was going to get to because that's what Isaac said. In a yeah. different podcast, he showed up and he was like, yo, what's up? like, yo, who are you? What's up? Like, how are yeah. you guys fucking with this music? It, it's funny, man, because, you know, growing up, growing up where we grew up, like, I, I forget who it was, but somebody told us, yo, you know, if you guys want to hang out with with uh, with people like you that listen to hardcore, there's a bunch of dudes in Jackson Heights. And so we, we heard that there was some dudes that hung out that listen to hardcore in Jackson Heights, but we didn't quite know them. Um, Ezek was one of them. You know what I'm saying? Uh, Bundy, Cheeky, you know, all those guys. So, uh, but yeah, we ran into Ezek over there at uh, at Numbers. And I know Ezek has a funny story. I forget what happened because it was a long time ago. But um, yeah, that was the spot. But we would go to Numbers. If we weren't going to Numbers, we were going to Bleaker Bob's, Venus Records, you know, some records in the city, places like that. Like I enjoyed jumping on the train to go buy records in the city. I'd go there with Dave, sometimes with Hoya. And, you know, that was like, that was like a cool trip. You know what I mean? Um, these days, like, I don't want to say, I don't want to sound old and say I feel bad for the kids, but it's just too easy with the phones. You know Absolutely. what I mean? Like Absolutely. getting out of the house, jumping on the train, making a day with your boys, going to buy records and taking a walk around the city. It was cool. You know? I mean, I remember just on a Saturday getting excited about, hey, we're all going to link up and we're going to meet at this record store somewhere. And because you're in that record store, you're going to run into people also hitting that record store. Yeah. That became the converging point. Now with the social medias, they could just do it virtually. And, you know, Spotify, I think, takes away something that we talk about a lot on the podcast, which is you go in with X amount of money. We didn't have we didn't come from a lot of money. Right. So you, you bought something. If it was ass, you had to listen to it and be like, oh, fuck. Are you like you might even not even think it's ass because you're like, yo, fuck it. It's cool. You know, like these things are all gone now. Dude, I listened to it. I spent money on it. I was listening to it until I learned to like it. <laughs> Fucking right. Fucking absolutely right. I think you about know? that. I think about that with a couple records specifically. Like, this is what I got that week. So I, I fuck it. It's going to stay on until I get, until I know it, you know? Yeah. The, the funny thing about that is like, I remember one of the only records that I remember taking a walk to numbers and buying that I could not convince myself to like, and I, I think that it went the same with like Hoya and a few of us, was we took a long walk to buy Injustice for All from Metallica when it came out. And I'm listening to it, I'm listening to the first song, and I'm like, it's all right. Notice now it's going longer and longer, and I'm like, I don't like this. And I heard the second song, and I went, holy shit. <laughs> I was like, money gone down the tubes. you know. And I know a lot of heads love it, but... That was the first time that I was like, I don't know. I don't know if I could force myself to like this. Maybe I like like two, three songs on the whole thing. Yeah. As a kid, I can't, I came up in through the metal world and master of puppets to me is like, if that's like a 10, the you know, say like the 10 Island records, master of puppets is on the Island, you know, like, yeah, I, oh, yeah. I, I think it's one of the only CDs I have in my truck that only plays CDs. Yeah. Just, you know what I'm not like? That's like, that's where it's at. But the production, the songs being sometimes six minutes long. It was like, fuck, you know, like when you get and the same thing, you get it, you listen to it. You're like, you try to like it, but it'll never stand up to master puppets. Nah. Yeah, dude. Cause that year, so many, 
so much great music came out. Let me let her back in. Hold on. Yeah, no problem. All right, get it. So, you know, that that year you got, I remember getting Master of Puppets and then uh, Rain and Blood. Yeah. You know, records like that. Um, I forget, a bunch of records came out that year, but there was tons of good music. You know what I'm saying? It, it was like every, everything was like a home run. And um, th those were good times, man, because nobody sounded like anybody else because it was kind of new. Like it hadn't been done before yet. Absolutely. So every, yeah, everything was so fresh where like, you know, I think it it probably feels that way for kids these days. I sometimes I wonder that because I wonder if, you know, the guys that were older than me said, well, this Metallica riff sounds like Deep Purple, you know, and I wasn't catching on to it because I didn't grow up on Deep Purple. <laughs> you know what I mean? So I, I see a lot of uh because obviously especially at the time I had a lot of metal magazines in the house. So like I was prolific in reading every review of everything. And it seemed the things that stand out is that the thrash metal bands had that pick different picking styles, you know, like Slayer for a while stayed pretty open. You could hear it in the first two records, but then they must've been playing near Metallica because then they start tighten up that, that down pick and riff style. Yeah. Yeah. And the bands that really did that, you know, like they really progressed beyond the classic British wave of heavy metal influences because the, the picking style, you know, some of the, the, uh, the, I would say the forbearance of the double bass that was running through like almost an entire song. You'd hear that, you know, like it kind of took off, but I think by the second or third record, you know, Megadeth, Anthrax, you know, Metallica, all of them all ran in a completely like if, if heavy metal was going at 50 miles an hour, that was thrash was going to 80 miles an hour, you know? Yeah. You know what it is too. It's like, you know, you got the British bands and yeah, you know, they, they were palm muting and all that stuff. But I feel like here in the States, we did it more aggressive. And um, <clears throat> I want to say it was uh, almost more mechanical. You know what I'm saying? It sounded like a machine. Absolutely. Like, you know what I, I mean? Like really tight, you know? So it got really tightened up over here. And I mean, now you can hear it. It's amazing. Like kids now just automatically play like that. But back in the day, it was like, oh, how do I get that sound, you know? People kind of take it for granted these days. Like, I mean, I give it to them, but I hear, you know, I hear these brand new bands come out and <laughs> they're, play, they're playing better than we did, you know. Oh, absolutely. It's a, it's the first, everyone's first bands was pretty miserable, yeah, but yeah. these kids' first bands are doing so much more, so much quicker. The demos, you hear a demo today and you're like, God damn, I'm a fucking LP. Didn't sell like this oh, yeah, fuck is going on? Yeah, I listened to my first demos and I'm like, holy crap. I'm like, Jesus Christ. I'm like, it's freaking sounds horrible, you know, but um, there was limitations back then. But also things that I would let slide that, you know, I, like I'll tell Caden when he goes record. I'm like, I always tell him, dude, don't let shit slide. Cause you're going to hear it 30 years later and get pissed. <laughs> <laughs> so when talking about limitations, obviously it, it needs to be said, like culturally, you guys are not the average white headbangers trying to play music. And so you have the cultural thing with your families. You're in Corona. I, I imagine that there's no garages like in the other part of Queens where the bands can practice. So how the hell were you guys even first starting to form these bands? Like how were you, were you guys in basements? Were you guys using borrow gear? Like, how did you guys even rummage shit together to start these first couple bands you guys were doing? This is great. You're going to love this story, dude. So, <laughs> so in the beginning, like granted, 
you know, Hoya, Hoya and I, when we were, when we were in middle school, we decided we were going to start a band and uh, we didn't even have instruments. So he automatically said he was going to play bass. I remember I said I was going to play drums, but problem was I didn't have any place to play drums. You know, I didn't have a place to put it. I mean, you know, my mom would have kicked my ass. So, yeah, I, absolutely. you know, so my mom was like, oh, how about I get you a, a, a guitar from Finger Hut? Piece of crap, dude, like a Fender Strat copy yeah. with like a freaking cheap box amp with a vibrato on it. And um, I remember we started practicing first in Hoya's porch and it would just be me and him practicing. But they, his mom used to let this, um, I think they were like a Mexican band. They used to play the bars. She used to let them store their gear in the basement. Oh, shit. Yeah. So when we met Richie that played, you know, Drums and Demise, and then we met Jeer, we just started saying, you know what, yo, we got this gear down in the basement. Let's just use that. And then we would jam in Hoya's basement. I mean, we probably destroyed their gear, man, because we didn't know what the <laughs> hell we were doing. And I kind of feel bad now because I'm thinking we definitely must have messed their stuff up. And those guys must have made a living playing that. Yeah. You know, the, they depended on that stuff. But that if it wasn't for them, I mean, you know, I'm very grateful. If it wasn't for them, like there'd probably be no demise because that's, you know, it was because of being able to have their gear, being that it was available that we were able to practice. And then as we got older, you know, um, we started practicing at the studio underground studios in Maspeth. And, uh, you know, it became one of those things where we would set up a practice so that our friends had a place to go. So if you could imagine, you know, it would be like, oh, there's nothing to do tonight. Yo, let's practice. And then we got like, I don't know, 20 heads inside the studio, you know, and sometimes friends of ours would pay for rehearsal just so that we'd have a place to hang out. So they'd be like, yo, why don't you guys practice? Oh, that's fucking cool. Yeah. It'd be like, all right, you know, double O when, you know, back in the day, rest in peace. He would, he would, he was the one that would do it the most. He'd always be like, yo, let's go practice. And, and <laughs> Just have all, something to do. Yeah. Yeah. It'd be us all chilling, drinking, hanging out. And dude, sometimes we'd hit the studio 11 at night to two in the morning, you know, maybe three in the morning. Sometimes it's a studio just didn't close in New York. That's fucking awesome. Yeah. It was great, dude. Now, obviously, at that time, a lot of what comes out now as kids obviously get like hip to like Sunset Skins and the skinhead stuff. But I've always like I, I know because we have private conversation about it, but I'd love to hear how a bunch of brown kids who are in the heavy metal trying to do these hardcore bands end up dressing up and dressing down in skinhead shit. Like, where did that connection come and how did it affect you guys? That um, the skin, you know, the skinhead connection, I would say, also came from Dave. You know, but but, you know, the weird thing is, I remember going to shows and, and running into like Minus and Saab before we knew them. And they were already dressing like that. And we were dressing like that. They so, were Brooklyn dudes, though, weren't they? they? Yeah, they were Brooklyn, but they were, you know, they were going to shows at CB's and Pyramid as well. Um, so for us, I would say it came from Dave and, you know, he was Alleyway Cruz. So those guys were doing it before us. And uh, the Brooklyn guys, I'm not sure where they got it from, but Jorge, he was another one. They were already down with that. And we would all meet up. And, you know, I remember Minus having like a Puerto Rican flag on his flight. Um, I want to say Rico. Rico had a Dominican flag or something like that on there. So it was cool, man. It it felt it felt at home because it was it was other people just like this, even though we're brown. You know what I'm saying? There was all colors, man. I mean, I'd see Asians there, blacks, Hispanics, white. You know, and it was all good. I wouldn't look at any of them and, and say they're different. It felt like family to me, you know, and still does. 
I think that's cool thing about the New York hip hop culture at that time is there's still a lot of stuff going on just straight up in the park. So like, as you guys are hanging and doing shit, you guys had to be like juxtaposed right alongside some of them big park parties where like the DJs would come out. Like that was still really vibing at that time. Right. Yeah. And you know what, dude, that's how, that's how our hangouts used to be. Like if we, we would meet up and we would, you know, we'd meet up, let's say at 78 street park and they'd be like, I don't know, 20 of us. And then they'd be like uh, another crew that would hang out there. Let's say, I think THM used to hang out back in the day. Now, all of a sudden, we're there, guys. Now we got like 40 people hanging out in the park, partying all night and doing stuff. And, you know, those guys weren't into hardcore. They were into like the, the hip hop and stuff like that. But again, it didn't matter because it was like part of the culture. Yeah, you know, we were all we were all doing our thing, hanging out, having fun. Um, I mean, I. I in Queens these days, if you see like 40, 50 people hanging out in the park that look like they're all together, it'd probably be get broken up and be a problem. Wow. You know, back then they would just let us do our thing. Yeah, you you're figuring you're in the neighborhood, you're in the park, you ain't bothering yeah. nobody sitting on the corner, right? Yeah. Yeah. Man, all that's now chilling, hanging out. So you start getting down there around 86. This is like a high point in hardcore in New York City. Were you guys even aware of like Hey, these are legendary things or for you guys because it's all young and fun. You didn't realize like this is a high water mark for fucking New York hardcore at the time. I don't I didn't to to me, everything was a high water mark right from the beginning. Like like to me, I would see, you know, I'd see a Cro-Mags record and it was the equivalent. Like to me, they were like rock stars, like not in a bad way. But, you know, I respected them at that level or same thing with Agnostic Front. So I did know when I would go to shows that. You know, it was um, it, it was definitely cool to me because I respected those bands at a very high level, and and to go to the shows and then see all these people hanging out that play in these bands, you know, um, it was definitely made it special. But I didn't realize, I would have never thought that it would carry on this long, or that any of us would still be doing it for this long. You know, I mean, I think it's amazing that that everybody still listens to all these bands from you know back in the eighties and stuff like that but i don't know if i knew at the time that it would it would keep going for so long but at the time when i when we were into it and going to shows that to me was everything you know and if um i mean for instance any record i bought i'd wear it out i, I remember when born expire came out i couldn't stop freaking listening to that thing and then it would be like you know uh you know you'd record it for your boy on a tape and then he'd wear it out yeah. and, I, you know, my copy would start skipping after a while and I got to go buy another one. <laughs> how did you, how did you interpret burn born to Exire when you first, cause obviously you've seen them play live beforehand. Yeah. Like, yeah. you know, they were playing them songs out, but like when you heard that record for the first time, because you're interested in metal, like it had to blow your fucking mind when you heard it. Like when you hear it, like the produced quality of that. Joe, when I heard that, the first thing I thought was, yo, these guys play better than, than Cali metal bands. You know what I'm saying? Like yeah. the production, and, and the way those guys played to me and then having the, you know, Eddie's delivery um, resonated more with me. So when I heard, I was super proud, you know, almost like, like, and I didn't even know them at the time, but to me, I was like, damn, these guys are from Queens and they play better than, than these guys in Cali. It, to me, it's amazing. And still to this day, I listen to that record. You know, I, I remember trying to, you know, when I was a kid trying to play along with those songs and even if I could do it, I couldn't get the sound that they had. And, and, you know, it has a lot to do with, you know, they worked with less, like less distortion than I would use on my guitar. When I was a kid, I would just crank everything to 10. You know, AJ knew what he was doing. 
everything was dialed in perfect and it was more about how how well and tight he played than it was about making his guitar sound crazy heavy you know um that that's why to me i mean you listen to born to expire and i to me it has better production than master puppets i mean some people might say i'm crazy but i could hear everything that's going on in born to expire as it i think in the history of new york hardcore there's different things that come up that people i think within new york hardcore sometimes the social personalities and the and the history make people stuff some bands lower in the hierarchy than they are but to me Born to Expire is in the top five New York hardcore records because of everything that came from people listening to that record. Yeah, man. Yeah, that 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 record heavily influenced me, you know. And um, I remember my buddy Carl he used to skate with Hoy and I. He was the one that told us about Leeway, you know, before they were even called Leeway. So we were hip to it. I heard it before the record came out. You know, we seen them, but the record blew me away because I. I couldn't believe how friggin' amazing it sounded when I heard it, you know, and then you got like, you know, not just them, even like, you know, killing time with bright side. That's another one, you know, all coming out of Normandy sound. When I heard that, I was, I was amazed too, man. That's, I mean, you know, I, that record is one of the, to me, one of the heaviest records I've ever heard. I, I, I literally have it behind me. I think it's like, in like a, that's another Island record. Like I, the bright side to me, is a perfect combination of New York hardcore, the older stuff, the way it was faster and more punk. And then when they started getting heavier, then down parts, and then there's the epic build up to the sing-alongs. I don't even understand how they compose them songs that way. Dude, it's perfect. And if you listen to the riffs, it's not like they were trying hard to sound heavy. And that's what amazes me. Like I hear some of those riffs and I'm like, man, I'm like, that sounds like a rock riff. But when Killing Time does it, you want to fuck somebody up. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? No, I I have to I have to say it's like a that's like like a golden window of time for New York hardcore and it's like what you guys were interpreting and bringing in would later be like what I think is like the unsung part that only now today in 2023 our kids like oh my god check this out so it's, it's a surreal thing because you guys were like literally tapping into like original sources and it, it it fucks me up now that you see kids like I was talking to John Scadano about it and he was saying the same thing, all oh, these bands. And I'm like, these are actually now bizarrely some of the most popular bands that 18 to 20 year old kids talk about it. The demises, the bands from Brooklyn, whether it's the biohazard, the type of negatives, the life of agonies, like all this different stuff that would come later on in your story. Like as a 80s turning into the 90s you guys are all a part of now, but it all basically came from the sum parts of these couple records yeah. that you're finding as a kid, you know? Yeah. And I, I think that that came because, you know, um, you, you know, you had the crossover before us, of course you had Whiplash doing it, you know, what DRI crumb suckers. But I think the difference with, with us is that, we wanted to make it crossover, but we wanted it to be like tougher sounding. You know what I'm saying? So, um, you know, I, I'll was, say like for, for us, you know, with, with Demise in the beginning, we were adding we were adding the metal and, and fine tuning it towards the end to get to what we wanted, which, you know, um, X Hoarder, stuff like that. Like I, we love listening to the law. Um, but I'll always say I think Marauder kind of nailed it. 
you know, because I remember playing shows with Marauder and I remember hearing Besiege the Masses, you know, when they wrote that. And I was like, holy shit, man. I'm like, these freaking dudes really nailed it, you know? Well, so um, walk down, walk down like a little bit of a chronology here, because obviously you guys are doing the demise thing. You, you know, you know, my, you know, minus, you know, sobs, so you know that they got stuff going on. We, who's who's coming out of the camp first with songs and is it demise or is it a band before demise and then i know there was the band occupied territory going on and then i know uh marauder was starting to kick off so like you had a really front row seat as this next era of new york hardcore is building up was there anything that people don't talk about that was also popping up that kind of got lost in the sands of time um no i think you you, you pretty much got occupied territory was pretty much the the first dms band you know okay. so when when the crew was called occupied territory by the time that 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 uh i was hanging out they they were you know they were done they were done but um their guitarists did do a little bit of time in in uh in um demise so lewis he he played for a little while but then i think he was just done with music um but i want to say you know marauder started around the same time as demise and I, I remember going to shows and Saab telling me that he had a band. And I was like, word, you got a band? And he was like, yeah, yeah. And um, and, and I want to, man, I don't remember what the first show was when I first time I heard him. It might have been a show at the Crazy Country Club, but I, I really can't remember. But, you know, we were all starting our bands around the same time. And, um, and we we're all sort of like vibing off each other and like learning from each other, too. Because I got to say, like, I learned a lot from watching Marauder as well. You know, um, as as far as it comes to like playing tight, you know, um, the, the the drumming, you know, the double bass, the stuff like that. But um, you know, there was a few others. You had uh, I remember Lament, which you mentioned, yeah. John. You know, they were playing around that same time. We played Demise, played a show with Lament in New Jersey, as well over at uh, Jen Schaefer's. Um, yeah, there, there, there was a few. There was a few. Yeah. Life of Agony also around that time. Yeah, I feel like the Brooklyn scene was where some more of the metallic stuff really was getting seated quicker. You yes. know, like obviously in the in the city, you had the New York hardcore matinees and you had the big rich shows where like that stuff was going on. But I feel like the Crazy Country Club and Lemoore's is where the metallic crossover was really birthed for New York hardcore, in my Absolutely. opinion. Yeah, and that that's you said it. That's exactly it. The re that having Lemoore's over there, especially really influenced those hardcore bands over there um that that's where because you had all the big metal bands were going there you know you had slayer you had metallica playing there megadeth everybody and all these hardcore kids would go over there and see those bands and then they would you know they would learn from that and, and use that in their bands and their hardcore bands and and i'd say like it, it helped a lot man because everybody learns from each other even though queens i don't think sounded as metal in the late eighties, early nineties, as, as the Brooklyn bands, it bled over to the Queens yeah. because even like, you know, you hear uh, the last few recordings that demise did towards the end and you could hear the metal coming in with songs like soul search and misery. Um, we started getting it in there. And by the time that recording was done, I was, I was playing in a grindcore band called asphyxiation. So, oh, we're, shit. so I was going full blown into, into the metal stuff. And um the the guitarist that was in demise with us, Steve Pettit, that was playing rhythm, was also in asphyxiation with us. And you know, he later on went to everybody who gets hurt. So the metal just kept going, dude. Yeah, I think the um I know Carl Bacara said dudes from Mortician hung out with the uh with the breakdown dudes in the park. 
And oh, yeah. I know, I know uh, a bunch of different dudes that were Brooklyn dudes who were kind of doing the grind, but also went to the hardcore shows. Yeah. And you have them weird. Yeah, yeah. Obviously, like the rich, you have the rich dark side meets up with Blake, and they start the the dark side NYC stuff. There's all this cool shit. Plus, Pete Steele because of the bands he was doing before his impact with the calls for alarm. There's all this cool shit that's very metallic. But I also think because of Born to Expire, because of the the direction the Crow Mags went. You know, like New York hardcore was getting more metallicized. And I think that you guys captured a completely different way about doing it. So was was the first shows that you guys were playing not even in the city? Were they out in the like the Crazy Country Club in Brooklyn and Queens? Or did you guys play the city first? No, it was our first show was in Greenpoint in Brooklyn. Okay. At, at, a, at a biker bar. I think it was uh, Go was on it, but they didn't play. I think they canceled um resistance was a band from queens they played it with us um but uh you know yeah we were playing crazy country club we played there i think we played a place to cabaret in brooklyn a lot of the shows were out in pa though we'd always go out to reading and play unisound yeah jake jake was real cool with having us over there um a few shows at cbs i want to say we played the pyramid too um abc no rio you know places like that over in the city um, so there was a few, we would have played, you know, Demise didn't last that long. So we didn't get out there and play as many shows as maybe like Marauder did because, uh, I mean, we broke up, we lasted maybe, I don't know, three, four years, something like that, you know? And then we all had other projects. Hoy was doing Mad Ball at the same time towards the end. And then I was doing asphyxiation, you know? So then, you know, we kind of, that kind of like fizzled out, but, you know, we had our spots, you know, there was some good clubs in New York though. Now, when I think about that time, and it's good you bring up ABC No Rio because starting to be that the violence in CBGBs was pushing people to go to the CBs less. ABC No Rio was a different kind of spot, but yeah. you guys were also able to play there. And then also, just in general, New York Hardcore, the first level of bands were either getting too big to play CBs or their bands were breaking up. And then the people who were not really vibing on the violence, they were starting some more of that post-hardcore. So, like, it's a completely weird time for New York hardcore because it's still within the under the first 10 years when you guys pop up and start metallicizing it. So it's almost like the death of, like, the second wave of hardcore and the beginning of a metallicized hardcore in New York, you know? Yeah, yeah. But it's funny, you know, because it's like a... You know, like those toys, you pop one, you push one head down and another one pops up. And that's exactly so, it. Yeah. yeah. So CB's closes and then you've got, you know, the pyramids thrown shows, you know, or uh, what was that other place? That place, the gas station, you know, then you had the wetlands, you know, the wetlands picked up a lot of the shows when CB shut down. Um, and, you know, I, I understood why CB's would shut down, but it, it's one of those things where I also think that hardcore the hardcore scene is a reason why cbs lasted as long as it did i don't think absolutely could have survived without hardcore absolutely i mean you see it with the first bands that were playing before the new york hardcore matinees it's like blondie's not going to play there every fucking week david bowie's not going to stop by every fucking day you know and i think hilly and them took advantage of what was building up in the les and had people basically plug in and play it wasn't like they were calling these bands and booking them People were dying. To, people were traveling from all over the country by the end of the the first run of CBs just to be at a fucking matinee. How how crazy was it sitting in that line waiting to go to that show? Like the and and the anima, like the anticipation, the animosity. Everyone who's come on there be like, man, I remember the first time I sat outside that line. 
And I remember the first time I sat, I was like, holy shit, this is standing out in the line. Yeah. Of and that's exactly what I was thinking when you mentioned it. I was thinking about the line because I remember sometimes the line would just like wrap around the block, you know, and, and sometimes it was, I mean, it would get so freaking hot in there that the walls were wet and sweaty. But sometimes I'd be like, man, I'll just sit right outside the door and listen because it, it was just too jammed. You'd walk in and you'd be stuck right at the, right at the bar and you couldn't even get all the way up, you know, so you, you had to get there a bit early, but it, it was cool, man, because on a Sunday you went there, even if you knew you weren't going to go in, you were going to go there, hang out with your boys outside. You know, it was, it yeah, was, it was uh, a place to be everywhere. Yeah, you wanted it, to be there. Yeah. It was the place to be. And, and I mean, you would, every show seemed like a sold out show to me because like we were saying, the line was going around the block um, I don't think it almost didn't even matter who was playing. We were going to CBs no matter who. I mean, I didn't even ask. It got to a point I wouldn't even ask who's playing the matinee. I would just go, <laughs> you know, which which is the cool thing because you discovered a lot of cool bands that way. You know, I mean, if if I was to say, oh, who's playing CBs? Oh, I'd have never heard of that band and not go. Uh, I mean, you know, I'm not saying that I, I would have broke the scene, but I think everybody was like me in the sense that, they didn't care who was playing. They went there for the experience. And then the scene flourished from there. Now, obviously, you guys are still pretty young when Demise is actually like starting to roll. So there was like no thought of like, oh, we need to get on a record label. We need to get distribution. We need, like, But I've always laughed that like somehow Redding and Unisound and Crazy Jake ended <laughs> up being this like converging point for like, like Integrity played their first show ever at Unisound somehow, and they're from Ohio. Like Starkweather, Lament, uh, all the guys from Brooklyn who were in, like Confusion, like all these people met at different places. Obviously, you know, Jamie Davis, all the bad luck heads, yeah, all yeah. the go out there. You know, like it was the weirdest place because it was just a weird time for hardcore, like All At War, Starkweather, like all these bands are all coming out around the same time. And, um, it just did you guys realize like oh we're we're starting it i don't think you ever really realized but did you start realizing like oh shit these these bands are taking off in a different direction yeah i i realized that we were um i realized like we said before i realized that we were more metallic a lot of the bands and i think a lot of the older bands kind of like um they they weren't liking to it i mean they they would be like oh those bands are too metal like i know it, you know, not to say anybody specific, but I know that a lot of the older bands were like these bands, these young bands are, are basically metal bands, which I'm sure that a lot of heads probably say that today about the newer bands as well. But I did notice that the styles were different. Um, Jake, though, I don't think he cared what style you were playing. That guy was just keeping the scene alive over there. And, oh, and he's to this day. Yeah. I talked to him. I just talked to him a couple of weeks ago still about getting him on the podcast. And oh. the shit he has is so crazy. He has live videos and soundboard recordings from so many of them shows. And yeah, he knows, so he knows band like, Oh, I know this band played and I know this band played. It, it, it's fucking insane. Yeah. dude, We played so many great shows over there with Gorilla Biscuits, you know, killing time. I mean, everybody's played it played, you know, geez, I can't even remember how many we went there all the time. It was like a second home for us. And for a lot of the other bands, you know what I mean? I want to say, uh, Geez, even throwing a corruption, you know, Tim Borg's yep. band. Yeah, I remember playing over there with those guys. So what ended up what to you, what do you think? What do you think was the uh was it just that you guys couldn't push the band? Like what was the the, the end result of ending demise? The the end, I think, was um we noticed that a few of the members weren't that into it anymore. 
towards the end. So, the, you know, that that was like Hoy and I's baby, that band. Um, you know, we got Cheeky in there. The band got even better. Everything was an improvement. We got Jonathan in there. The band even became better. But it got to a point where it felt like we had to chase guys to get them to come to practice. Or if, you know, we were going to book a show, like you wouldn't get a response back for a few days or even weeks, you know, to, to tell you if they could do it. And um, since Hoy and I already had the other projects, um, we decided one day, we're like, you know what, man, it, you know, these guys are falling out of love with it. Let's just do our other things. Um, because, you know, it's it sucks when you got to chase other people around, you know. And, and I think, you know, I don't have nothing against the other guys because I don't think it was a, a, a I don't think that it was something that they noticed they were doing. You know, I, I know that our drummer, Jonathan, was getting more into like the punk thing. So I think he had like a punk project that that was, you know, he kind of was getting out of the style that we were doing. It was becoming played out for him, you know. Um, so, you know, with that and, and Cheeky's is Cheeky. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, but I, I love those guys. I don't want to say the band ended because of them, but, you know, it was one of those things where, you know, Hoy and I had our other projects and we said, oh, you know what, if they, they don't seem like they're as into it. So let's just move on with our other stuff. I think that if they would have called us and said, hey, let's let's do it again, we would have done it again. You know what I mean? But th those guys were having fun doing their own thing, whatever, you know, whatever that was. So Hoya starts doing Madball. You've got asphyxiation. Run me through what New York hardcore is like when AF drops one voice. Man, um, it when AF dropped one voice, I believe we were still in Demise. Yeah, it was like a tour tour like the tail end, like the last year or so. Right? Yeah, yeah, because we played we played a few shows with him. But if I remember correctly, and I mean, you know, I'm old, so I could be wrong. I remember the scene was kind of like on a downslope during that time. It wasn't doing too good. And, the, you know, that I love one voice. I mean, I think that's one of AF's best records. But I, I think that it came out as sort of like a, a downtime for the hardcore scene. You know what I mean? Um, I feel like hardcore started coming back around when, um, when, when Madball did set it off is when it started jumping right back up. So, you know, you figure like 93, 94, it, it started getting new life. But I think that when one voice came out, there was a, a, a period where hardcore was kind of like phased out for a little while, you know, and then the new generation came, you know, yeah, like, like we were kind of alluding to towards where the one voice into where Manball starts taking presence is like the end of the CB shows. You know, you have that famous sick of it all agnostic front uh, GB show that was shot for the in effect video. GB would stop playing shows. There was a bunch of other old guard bands that really stopped playing. And then, you know, obviously the, I think the one major band that kind of stayed with it was uh sick of it all. They kind of, jumped up after that point and was like they were like the big new york hardcore band oh yeah i didn't realize my picture went up <laughs> no it's okay yeah it was up i was like I, I thought you were doing something i was like no no but no fact. no 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 i did that automatically my oh. bad. no it's all good but um yeah you're right though it was kind of like the switching of the guard you know what i'm saying so uh, a, a lot of those older bands that they, they kind of like you know they went on to do their other things also like i feel like some of those bands didn't exactly go away. Like, I, I want to say that's around, like, Quicksand, you know, bands like yeah. that started coming out. You know, those guys were moving on to, like, uh, 
to, to different styles. You know what I mean? Granted, they were doing hardcore longer than us, so they, they were maturing. You know what I mean? Um, and, you know, for us, we just wanted to play harder and heavier. So that, you know, that's that's when you had, like I said, you know, Madball doing with uh, doing Set It Off and um, me going into like more like the death metal stuff. And, Dude, death metal from I think like 90, 89 to like 94 is like the the prime death metal shit. Like bands now, like the, the band Frozen Soul. Uh-huh. sounds like the stuff that i was listening to then like as a kid just me like yeah. this is the fucking greatest like yeah yeah no nah, it, it's it's cool though because now um like i think death metal is in everything now you listen to hardcore bands and a lot of hardcore bands got elements of that stuff um you know when, when i when i was doing it i was always back in the day i was trying to to squeeze it into hardcore as as good as i could <laughs> yeah you know what i mean but like like i said back in the day there was the limitations you know um amps didn't didn't you know amps weren't as good as they are now you know um i don't want to say guitars weren't as good maybe i just wasn't as good as the guitars but everything would sound kind of sloppy so it didn't work as well um you hear now the way kids fit it in with all this gear i mean it's precision and and i think like a lot of these hardcore bands play even better than, than some of these death metal bands, or I prefer the hardcore version of death metal to actual death metal sometimes, you know what I mean? There, there's bands that unequivocally ride on the, uh, the, the wave of bands that have like laid platform after platform for them. So they show up, they don't have to go back to the rudimentary shit, you know, like, yeah. and you can, you know, like it's, it's hard, but then there's still these bands that just come out and you're blown away. Like how the fuck are they still thinking of new shit to do? You know, like, I think it's the hardest thing. If you want to start a new band right now, what are you going to do? You're going to, you have to do something someone already did. You're not going to make it better. Or you've got to be a genius and figure out a hole where no one had gone yet. Yeah, no. Nah. You know, a lot of these a lot of these bands, though, um, they they do it well, man. Because, I mean, Caden plays me some stuff sometimes. Or I'll hear him listening to music in his room. As a matter of fact, it happened today. I, you know, I was in the bathroom brushing my teeth and he's playing some band. And I've yet to ask him who the hell the band was, but the band sounded freaking hard, man. Um, definitely a death metal type element to it. And uh, if it makes me feel like ripping the door off the wall, then it's good <laughs> shit. And I was feeling it. And, you know, he's not home now. I'm going to have to ask him, who the hell were you playing, you know, earlier today? But it stokes me, man, when I hear new stuff that that gets me going um it lets me know that there's freaking hope you know <laughs> no I, I i have that moment in my head where like is it all going to be the same or am i going to still be excited and sometimes it's this stuff that comes out that sounds so much like something i loved but other times my ear peaks like oh shit i didn't like what the fuck there's this uh death metal band called tribal gaze and they were opening at a church show and you know where we sit yeah. at the door and they opened up with a riff, and I'm like, oh my fucking, this is fucking hard. I'm, they're not hard. I don't think they're hardcore kids at all. They're just straight up death metal. They're openers. But yeah. when you hear a band like that, it gets you excited. Um, getting you back. So, what happens with asphyxiation? You guys play shows just in like Brooklyn and wherever else, like more locally. Like, what were those shows like when you were playing them? Those shows, asphyxiation shows were mainly with Candiria and Human Remains. Oh, shit. Okay. Yeah. So, so. Those three bands would play a lot of shows together, you know, and um, I mean, Spirals, the Wetlands, they used to be like a, a little fest called the the Deathstock or something like that that we all used to play. Um, the Bank, 
in in you know in the city we used to play but it was a lot of shows yeah human remains in candaria um and asphyxiation would play out a lot together and it's funny man because i knew you know when i met all those guys i could tell they're hardcore dudes too but you know we're all playing metal <laughs> it was it was pretty awesome man and um uh i want to say you know candaria of course evolved into something that i can't say it's not hardcore and i can't say it's not metal they evolved into candaria like became like their own thing i mean they're probably one of the most amazing bands from the area you know well it goes back to that same thing like that i call it like an arms race to me because i was younger so i was catching up on some of the stuff from the first couple of years in the 90s that east coast assault the first one that's got like the demise on it. it's got dark side it's got the early convert it's got all these bands that would be like the prerequisite for what would be the platform to build uh, like what, what kids would now unfortunately call metalcore. Right. But like, there was so much of that, that when the Candiria start coming out, like actually like in a, in a more of a bigger presence than like what you're talking about in the early days, no one really could touch what Candiria was doing. No, they, hell had, no. they no. had, they had the insane combination of Ken on the drums, Mike on the car and, and Carly was, a f- like a head and above what like the obvi- what the average hardcore singer could put out, you know? Yeah. Yeah. All those, all those, even human remains too, man. I mean, to, you know, I oh, yeah. to didn't Dave Whitty play drums in that? He did. Yeah. Dude. He's a fucking monster. Yeah, he's a beast, man. I would watch them play and it, and it was crazy. I mean, I could, some of the stuff I'd watch their guitarists. It sounded like circus clowns running around. I'm like, Holy crap. I'm like, how do you even write this crap? Um, and watching Kenny playing drums at Candiria was crazy. Yeah. I never seen anybody in a small venue play the way that dude plays. <laughs> you know, it's it's nuts. And and those guys play with precision. Um, I mean, I don't know. I don't think there was a Meshuggah. And I feel that. No, that came I'm, later. That came like like 98. I think I seen them open for Slayer at yeah. the Electric Factory. Yeah. So so if anything, to me, I. Kandir was doing Meshuggah stuff before Meshuggah. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, they were they were so ahead on the off timing, you know, like yeah. remember that band Arcane that would eventually be like Dillinger? Like you started seeing that in some of the hall shows of some of the Metallica stuff. Yeah. The more metallic shit, but it was it just wasn't as seated as Candiria was, you know? Yeah, no, absolutely. No, Candiria was on they, they were on some other tip. I mean, I even used to ask those dudes, I'm like, yo, how do you? how do you practice this stuff? Like, how do you guys write this? Cause there's like backing tracks and the guitars are super tight, you know? Um, it, it's like an anomaly to me, man. It, but I appreciate that it was so different, you know? And that was something that, that I think that was great about like the, uh, the scene back in the day that um, every band sounded very different. You didn't, you didn't really have, uh, you could, you didn't walk into a show and feel like two bands sounded alike. Yep. I, I say this big. now. I say this now. I say like if a band came from Ohio now, unless they sounded like an integrity or something like that, like that'd be the only thing to be like, oh, that band's from Ohio. Everybody had a regional sound or they kind of did their own thing. And today, again, because of the streaming, because of the Spotify, the YouTubes, there's a homogenous everything sounds like everything else thing that kind of eliminates like, you know, when you went and you heard a Boston song, you know, like a band from Boston or like those weird upstate bands. And like, you know, you just knew like, Oh, that's a fucking upstate band. Yeah. You know, like there was a a completely different Genesis of bands where everybody had 
their own take on it. Connecticut had like three different mini scenes at that time. And, and there was all this different cool shit. And that's why I kind of want to get to that point. You're not playing like in Madball yet, but hardcore is shifting and changing. You're still heavily involved in going to the shows. Like as the, as the things start getting towards where you're saying, like, we're getting closer to set it off, you know, like, are you, are you still really involved at the shows at that point? When, uh, when I was doing asphyxiation, I was mainly, mainly, you know, hanging on the metal scene, not so much hardcore, but being that, you know, Hoy and I lived like across the street from each other. I knew what was going on and I'd go see Madball shows every now and then. Um, but I, I know this, like uh, one thing I know is that when I heard, when I heard the, the, the recording before they, before set it off was released, of course, you know, I heard a copy and, uh, and I wasn't really listening to that much hardcore at the time because I was more into the metal stuff, but something about what they did on that record, I knew that the scene was gonna, was gonna come back. Cause it was like some shit that I'm like, I can't believe you guys made this sound like a new style. You know, it, it to me, it was amazing. And, you know, and then having Biohazard too, you know, doing their thing. I mean, the scene blew up from there, man. And it, it all the bands kind of like, um, they had their, their own version of something that I could only say, you know, what 90 style, um, it's the, it was all like they all had a similar flavor but sounded very different absolutely you know what i'm saying it, it sparked like a whole new generation and um i mean after a while even uh i mean that's how i ended up in 25 that's what i was uh, that's what i was like walking you like when when you what was the uh precipice of being like was it fred who was the guy that got you to pull pull who pulled you in the 25 so it wasn't Fred, but Fred has been a friend of mine since I was probably 16. So Fred was he be- wearing Timbo's back when you were 16? Yeah, dude, he looked the same, but he had long <laughs> hair and a goatee. I thought Fred great. was 45 when he was 16. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> That's my boy. I love that. Yeah, he used to hang out with us in the park, and I didn't even know he played guitar. Like, I had no clue. But what happened was Frankie, they used to play bass in 25 before um, before Warren. Um he told me they were looking for another guitarist. And uh, for me, it was a weird situation because the, the, the guy that played in 25 before me with Fred was Steve Pettit. That was in demise. With yeah. Um, they, for some reason, you know, they, they, things weren't working out with him. So, you know, they, Frankie asked me, he says, well, you know, will you, will, you know, are you willing to jump in, join 25 to life? Cause you know, it's not working out with Steve. And um at first, I didn't want to do it because Steve's my boy and I love him. But it was one of those things where it wasn't gonna, it wasn't working out with him anyway, you know. Um, so Frankie asked me to join the band and I joined. Here's the funny thing. I joined the band and then I want to say Frankie left the band like a month later after I joined. <laughs> a month or two. So I'm like, this dude convinces me to join the band and then he leaves the band, you know. And um Remember, we were looking for a replacement, and Rick actually brought in Warren, which was perfect because as soon as he walked through the door and we were hanging out and talking, like I knew he was the guy because he just clicked with us. Yeah. You know, he was perfect and he was great on stage. His style was so cool. He played low, but he stayed in he stayed in the pocket with everything. You know, yeah, yeah it was fucking cool, man. Yeah, Warren was I've seen Warren break stages, dude. 
He was good. Yeah, he had that big jump, man. It was fucking awesome. Yeah, yeah, he'd be doing his, I don't know, pogo jump, whatever the hell is. And I could tell, I'd look in the, I'd be looking out the corner of my eyes and I'm like, this dude's really trying to bust a hole through this stage. Oh, there it goes. He busted a hole through the stage. <laughs> <laughs> so at that point in 25, Rick had kind of got the demos out, but you guys are really what really solidified that sound. Yeah. So, you know, a lot of the 25 to life sound is, is, um, is Fred. You know, Fred, Fred has a, a weird style. I almost call it like a street Kerry King version. Like he's like a street Kerry King, you know. Yeah, he's got a cool rhythmic way of putting the riffs together, yeah. but it's still so metallic and has them high notes with the, with the you know, it, it's it's so much unique to his style, the way he- You just know it's Fred. When you yeah. hear it, you, you know, you know, it's a Fred riff. And like me coming from straight, you know, directly from a, from a grindcore death metal band into 25 to life. Now I'm doing my, my dive bombs and all my stuff. It just fit in perfectly with, with what he was doing. You know what I mean? And um, all that stuff that, that, that I was doing in this fixation, I just took over to 25 to life, you know? And um, the funny thing is, is like, you know, I kind of became, I didn't have a whammy bar when I was in Demise on my guitar, right? I always wanted one. So the drummer from Asphyxiation worked at Sam Ash and he goes, dude, we got a guitar downstairs that everybody just messes around with. He's like, I'll give you this guitar. So, you know, I was an Ibanez RG with a, with a whammy bar. And I just started going nuts because I was so freaking excited having, having a floating bar and making all the cat purrs and noises. And then uh, when I joined 25, I'm like, dude, I couldn't keep my hands off that freaking thing. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome, though. I was going nuts because, dude, even like, you know, if you think like, let's say like in Demise on, on the, the Soul Search solo. Yeah. Um, I didn't have a whammy bar on that guitar. And and when that's so you're, solo, you're bending everything, you're physically trying to bend things. Yeah, I'm, I'm bending that note that bends at the end is me pushing the string up at the headstock with my middle finger. Oh, shit. Yeah, because I didn't have a whammy bar. (laughs) (laughs) I had to, like, make it happen, you know? And then even then, some of the guitars, you know, it's crazy to sound, some of the guitars that I used on those demos were guitars I would piece together because I didn't have money to go buy a new guitar. You know, that's why Mario ended up saying, hey, man, we got an Ibanez because poor Beto's playing a freaking guitar that's half Area Pro, half Fender, you know. Yeah, you got bridges from this and this. and Yeah, yeah and you're just putting it all together, making it happen, you know, because otherwise, if it wasn't for all that, then it wasn't going to happen. You know what I mean? So, um, yeah, that that's I think when 25, you know, with Fred style. And me being excited with that freaking Ibanez, that that's how we that's how that sound came to be, you know. You had Harry on drums then. Yeah, Harry. Was Dude, on Harry's drums. Harry may rival Demi for most amount of New York hardcore bands played on. Yeah. Dude, well, he played in everybody. Um, Discipline. Yeah. Yeah. He's got so many bands and even stuff he just played on or played with live. I always say, Demi, who played more live? You or, or who played on more bands? You or Harry? He's like, oh man, that's a hard question. Demi's got him beat now, though, man. Yeah, definitely. I just still saw does. Yep. Yeah, I just saw Demi the other day. He's he's in freaking every band, man. He's yep. in so many bands. I'm like, how do you do it, bro? You must live in a studio. He's too. <laughs> he's small. He just fits right with the drums. That's why they take him. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but um, yeah, Harry, Harry was in there with us. So you know, you had Harry Frank. Harry left the band after that the the European tour in 96 how um, was that for you going there like like culturally 
you you finally obviously did a couple shows out of town, but like, what was it like to just be on the East Coast in some random hall every single fucking weekend, and then be a kid from New York? Like, oh yeah, by the way, we're gonna go to Europe, and with this crazy Amazon maniac, head to toe tattooed, dreadlocked weirdo guy. <laughs> how like how was that in general? Just going from Queens kid, played a couple shows, traveled a little bit to oh every weekend we play shows. Sometimes we do the set twice, and now we're going to Europe. I'll say this. I, I was nervous in the beginning. Madball had already been going to Europe. Um, I might have been living with Hoya at the time. Um, and I remember that uh he, you know, Hoya was like, Come on, we gotta go get you your passport. They drove me to the <laughs> they drove me over <laughs> to the post office to get my passport because I wanted to do it, but I was kind of nervous uh, about doing, you know, going out there. Um you know, but we went, that tour was in January of 96. And uh, once I got there, I was super stoked and excited. But I remember that the bus, the heat broke on the bus, dude. It was like freaking below zero. Yeah. <laughs> but once I saw what the shows were like, all the shows were, from what I remember, sold out and packed. Kids kids were eating it up. I mean, they, they wanted to see 25. Um, there wasn't one bad show on the tour. And even though... The conditions were kind of crazy. Like, I think we had a bus breakdown. We got stuck. You know, there was no heat. To me, after a while, I didn't even care. But it, it was weird going to a place where some people didn't even speak the language, but they were super into the music and into the scene. You know what I mean? So so it made up for it. But I was, um, dude, I was super excited, man. And the first time I went to Amsterdam, I was like a freaking kid in a candy store dude. yeah you're like this is fucking out of control right yeah i mean i freaking stuck i can't re- i can't forget any you know i got so many stories just from being over there um it, it was i mean it makes you worldly man going going across going across the pond and realizing that you've got a lot in common with people that don't even speak the same language makes you a better person you know like i think like a lot of people that have never left this country um you know, it's easy for them to say, oh, screw, screw this country, screw that country, screw that country. But, you know, you know, you've been all over the world and we're all just people, man. And there's people, they be people in freaking North Korea that you'd vibe with because they're into the same bands. They got a lot of stuff in common with you, you know, and that's the main thing that, you know, that I take away from doing the music thing is that it opened my eyes a lot. You know, um, so I got friends all over the world. You know what I'm saying? And I love them all, you know, and, and without music, I wouldn't have had any of it, you know, so I didn't have to make a million dollars. I just needed the million of experiences. <laughs> you know? uh, absolutely. A, a, a friend of mine, an old guest on the show said access and exposure is what changes everybody and, and really having the access to travel, being exposed to these other places really does open up your mind's eye that there's a lot more out there. And especially as a hardcore kid, because, you know, you're thinking about shows whatever like whatever job you're doing you know whatever rent you got to pay and then you go to somewhere else and you're just like wait this is completely fucking different and yet like you said the common denominator is the music that brings everybody together yeah exactly yeah it brings everybody together man it's it's one of the, it's it's hard for me these days like when i see like the propaganda on the news and they're talking smack about another country or like wars and stuff i'm like man there's good people everywhere you know, they got to stop that nonsense. You know, there, there's people there that probably listen to one of your bands or you might listen to one of their bands. Um, 
it's really the world is really the world is a lot smaller now because of the internet too. Oh, absolutely. You know what I mean? And and also even before the internet with us traveling because of hardcore, the world became a lot smaller because it made you realize how far your reach is. You know what I mean? It makes you appreciate that stuff. What do you think the pitfalls were outside of personalities to get 25 to life to be at the level where Madball was getting to? Pitfalls, huh? I mean, you know, I I, I want to say I don't think that twenty five ever got to the level of of, of Madball, um, but I think that was also because because Rick wanted to keep it very DIY. Yeah, you know, he didn't so. he didn't really have a booking agent towards like till like almost like ninety seven ninety eight was like when he was like oh fuck we got to get one. Yeah, so that that was me telling him that we had to get one because what happened was. Rick would book shows and, you know, like like two shows in the same state on the same day, you know, and I, I felt like I was afraid that it was going to get to the point where kids would just had enough of us. So, I, you know, I felt that we had to get Rick under control. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, we got we got John Finberg back then who was doing all the bands. Um, but, you know, Rick, what Rick would do is. Finberg would book us a show and then Rick would book his own show. And so it kind of backfired. Anyway. Jesus. <laughs> he would straight up do it. And then Finberg would be like, what the hell is he doing? And I'm like, I don't know. You know, but Rick has always been that type that he's just going to do whatever the fuck he wants to do. You know what I mean? It was, he was hard to control. There's a blind side to his, uh, like the way people look at him now, because it's been so long since people could see him at the high point. You know, like where some kid would walk up and he'd know the kid because he had the demo tape. And like, there's all the there's all the disparaging things and there's all the funny stories you can say about Rick and all the crazy shit. But, you know, if you if you pull out all that shit that we all know, there was a part of him that really did give a fuck, but it was masked at times with so much insanity that you yeah. couldn't balance where it was from. You know, like, obviously, like the dubbing of the cassette tapes, you know, there's all these different things like, but I wonder if you felt the same way that, you know, despite all the, the chaos of him, that there was good in him at that time. There was good. And look, I like with the with the dubbing and stuff, I didn't get privy to that towards like the end, you know, which was one of the reasons why why I left the band. Um, but there was a lot of good times with him. You know, the problem with Rick is and you'll probably hear this and be like, F that guy. The problem, the problem with his is, is that I think that he did do good for a lot of bands. Absolutely. Um, you know what I'm saying? A lot of bands that people would have never heard of, they wouldn't have heard of it if it wasn't for Rick dubbing those tapes. Um, Absolutely. His mistake was that he didn't reach out to these bands and ask them if it was okay for, to do that. Because I'm sure if he would have, if he would have said, hey, listen, can I sell your demos? And, you know, your your payment is that I'm going to, I'm I'm going to, Put you out there to people that I would never heard you before. I'm sure some bands would have been like, "Well, that's good promotion. Go ahead and do it." Um, but he didn't do that. Yeah, it was like a, it was a no permission, and that's something that I say now. The same bands who, from let's say '96 to '01, will go ahead and motherfuck the fuck him. He just fucking sold that tape. Now all their old shits on Bandcamp for absolutely free or YouTube for free, yeah, and they're is. just happy that people in today's world are listening to it. So there's this bit of irony that like years later, he didn't get vindicated because obviously he was selling shit that wasn't his to sell, but there's a bizarre vindication through the digital age 
that because of the method of free distribution, bands that otherwise never would have been heard of or heard of. Yeah. Yeah, it's even worse now. I mean, you know, it's really hard to make money off your music these days. It's out there and and people are going to get it no matter what, even if it's on a streaming platform. I mean, what do you get when you stream Nothing. songs? Yeah, you uh, get like- I saw I saw a video of Snoop Dogg saying, if I got a million, if I got a billion li- listens, how come I don't have a million dollars? And so um, and it's I'm so happy you said this because this comes to become like one of the apex moments of, of New York hardcore hardcore in the 90s is it's fucking blowing up. I mean, you see it. We talked about Candiria, who did well, but never really got to like the man ball, the H2O, the sick of it all or the VOD or the biohazard level in the 90s. But everybody was making money, but it still wasn't the kind of let's sustain our entire lives for the next 10 years. It was like, I might be able to pay my rent because my <laughs> yeah. rent's $250, you know, like we're talking nineties rent, you know, like were you, was that something that was coming up in your mind? Because, you know, when we started talking about this, you started your first band, uh, 10, you're, you're 23, 24, looking at 25 to life going, Oh man, I got to start making sure I can fucking afford rent. Like was, was money because there was so much money being out there was that starting to be something that your peers and you guys were like thinking of not, Hey, how do I make money? But like, Hey, I got to fucking make sure I have some money coming in. Yeah. To, to me, it was always, I didn't care about making tons of money. I wasn't into it for that. To me, it was always just making enough money to survive. So when, when I was playing at 25, I worked in wall street, you know? So what I would do, what I would do so that it would work was I, I joined a temp agency and rather than 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 be an employee at the job, I'd be a contractor. That way I was free to bounce and, and go do my tours and stuff like that. Um, but uh, after 25, you know, um, once I was in once I was in Madball, that's when that changed, because then I was working. I ended up working at Merrill Lynch uh, as an employee. But, you know, thankfully, those guys. Um, you know, I, I told him at one point, I said, uh, and I went up to the director and I said, listen, man, if you guys want me to resign, I'll resign because I'm in a band and, you know, I'm going to be on the road a lot. And they're, you know, they basically said to me, no, 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 Rob, do what you got to do. Don't worry about it. They were like, um, what was it that he said? He says, just keep that smile on your face and thank us on the record. So when you look at the thank list on hold it down for Beto, it says, thanks to my friends at Merrill Lynch. So (laughs) Let's uh let's let's wrap up the twenty five to life real quick, um and on a, whether whether it was a pleasant note or not what what was the what was the lead up or what was the bowing out for you with twenty five to life with twenty five um well at, at that point I I was you know I was hearing the stories of the bad stuff that was going on with Rick um and he was losing favor in the city too like I remember some shit we're not going to bring up on the podcast happening and it was like it wasn't just people out of town be like, Hey, you're selling tapes. Like homeboys locally were like, yo, fuck this motherfucker. Yeah. And, you know, and again, and it's tough because the thing with Rick is, is that Rick and I have had very good times together. He's a funny dude. I, I listen. I, like I can say the exact same thing. Like yeah. there's, I have so many great fun Rick, the life stories that just are completely anachronistic to how people view him now. Yeah. You know, it's crazy. You know, he's a fun, you know, he's a fun guy. Um, when we were when we were in California, there was a few things that happened. I, you know, I mean, was that the I one where he got his teeth knocked out, or was he got the teeth knocked out on a tour as a roadie? No, yeah, that must have happened on a tour as a roadie, not not while he was with okay. us. But I, I do remember that, um, you know, we were we were in California. 
I, I wasn't privy to the whole blue and red thing. You know what I'm yeah. saying? I didn't know about colors and stuff like that. I mean, here in the East Coast, that stuff didn't matter back then. Yeah. And I remember I went over there. I was in San Fran in the Mission District wearing all blue. Oh, uh, shit. It was Yankees gear. Yeah. <laughs> Yankee, Yankee, like crew neck and stuff and my Yankee hat. And you're Dominican. You're required to wear Yankee shit. Yeah, man. What do you expect? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Freaking Dominican. Yeah. But, um. The, these kids, the, these kids all dressed in red. I forget what they were, but they kind of started like beefing. Um, and uh, and then I remember like, you know, Rick, Rick's response was I told Rick, I said, Yo, we got to get out of here, dude, because there was like, I don't know, these guys had like 30 people. They busted out machetes and bats. And, you know, his response to that was like, you know, kind of like effed up, kind of like, yo, why are you starting shit? And I'm like, bro, I'm not starting shit. I'm freaking wearing blue and I'm drinking, I think I was drinking a Snapple on the corner or something like that. <laughs> you know what I mean? I was like, what the hell's wrong with this guy? Yeah. I took it at the time as, cause we were at a record store. He was more concerned with, with, with buying gear than he was yeah. with our personal safety, you know, and, and we had to break out. But, you know, besides that, I, I had heard the rumblings about, about the, uh, the tape dubbing stuff. And again, you know, I'm not in his head, so I don't know what he was thinking. And he really might have been thinking in his mind that he was just helping out bands. It's a possibility. I, I think that there is a line there where he definitely was trying to help. Right. Because as a kid promoting at that time, you got to figure 1997, I'm 16 turning 17. I'm starting to do my first shows. And I was like, hey, Rick, I'm writing him letters. And he's mailing tapes for the cost of a dollar. Like, hey, if you send me $10, I'll send you 10 demo tapes. Right, or, right. hey, I'll be in Philly in three weeks. You want to meet up? I'll give you a bunch of stuff. I think you guys are like, and we got put on a lot by that kind of stuff. So I see the good in it, but I also see the adverse of it to bands being like, yo, man, like we're not seeing any of it. And then the, I call it the Joe Nunn theory where like he did the split seven inch and Joe's like, we don't know how many thousands of records they sold it. It's like, well, was it a thousand or was it like 500? Because like not every record was selling 5,000, you know, like right, right, right. some people in their head were like, well, it's got to be more than what it really was. You know, like, it, you know, yeah. um, by, by really catastrophizing it and blowing it up out of proportion, everyone's like, he's taking thousands. It's like, if you see Rick, where's this thousands of dollars are going? Like that yeah. fucking, that man pouch ain't that big, you know? Yeah, he, he, he probably doesn't even know how many he sold, honestly. Yeah. You know, but, it, I, you know, I'd say with me when I start when it was hard for me to stay in the band when people that I was very close to were beginning to have problems with them. Yeah. And and being that um, I don't want to say that that I had a beef with him or anything like that, but I do have a I always had a soft spot for Rick because I do think deep down he's a good dude. It was a lot easier for me to say, you know what, let me just leave the band. And let him do let him do his thing. Um, and hopefully it works out for him. You know what I'm saying? But uh, you know, when I left the band, I remember he said to me, he goes, Beto, but what are you gonna do? He goes, What are you gonna do if you leave the band? We were on the plane flying back from Cali, and I was like, I don't know, dude. I was like, I'll do another band, you know. I was like, 25 wasn't the first band I was in, and honestly, probably the third or fourth band I was in. And uh, a week later, I joined Marauder. You know, I was I was helping them out with a tour for five deadly. Is it five deadly venoms? I believe the name of the record. Yeah, it was yeah. right when that right when they had a tour for that. Yeah, yeah, it was right around that. So then you know, then I was playing with those guys. So you know, he'll tell people in interviews, he'll say, Oh, you know, Beta wanted to get out of hardcore. It wasn't that I wanted to get out of hardcore. No, you were actually more involved in hardcore. You're playing in two of the fucking biggest bands of that time. <laughs> you know, did you double duty on that show in Philly where it was Marauder and Madball playing with Earth Crisis? 
Hmm. I can't recall. I know you were in. I know you're definitely a man ball, but I couldn't know if you. Were, I can't recall it now. If it wasn't double, double duty. duty. I, I was in mad ball, but I'm wondering now who was a marauder. <laughs> yeah, that's why because I can't think of it. Uh yeah. So I have this thought about marauder because they signed the Century Media, and this is kind of funny that it's a Rick to Life thing. Is their CD was an import, so it wasn't ten bucks like everybody else's was. It was like twelve to fifteen at the record store. Yeah. So Marauder, even though I think if you want to put Master Killer in the top 10 1990s hardcore records, no one's going to fight with you about it. No right. one's going to fight with you about it. However, on the street, kids liked the band, but they weren't as accessible and they didn't they weren't as active as they should have been. I mean, I see them first time they opened from um, first time I seen them. They opened for Fear Factory It was Starkweather, Marauder and then Fear Factory at the Trocadero. On the record, on the record, um, might have been right when D Manufacture first came out. It was like that was like the first time I seen sob moshing, and he threatened to beat up everybody in the crowd during Starkweather. And then got on stage Sounds and put a guitar right. on, and I'm like, uh, the guy from Rotter was just fucking everybody up, <laughs> and um, <laughs> and now he's gonna play in Rotter. That's fucking sick. Uh, yeah. It was it's like a, a key moment for me. But I have to wonder what you felt seeing Rotter. Because you see, you see Madball blowing up. You know Earth Crisis coming out. You see some of these bands at that time all growing. And Marauder had the name, but they, were, they weren't as active. Was it, was it just not having the personnel of the tour? Was it just having different people in the back end of the band? that were, like What was going on? They weren't at that same level for what that record was. I think Marauder, Marauder were their own worst enemy. You know, Because I think Marauder definitely had it to be one of Absolutely. the bigger bands. You know, they definitely had, they had the talent, they had the songs, they had everything. But I think that those guys just got in each other's way a lot. Too many, too many alphas in the band. Yeah, everybody I wanted mean, to be this. The, the kids call it the main character. Your kids say that, the main character. Oh, he yeah. wants to be the main. He's like, everybody's like, and I and I always tell the people, like, the first time I heard Marauder was, wasn't Jorge. It wasn't until the advanced copy of what would be Master Killer that I heard Jorge. Right, I heard, right. I actually heard his other band first, the one that was on the New York's hardest comp. Full contact, yeah. Yeah. And um, so he had a hard voice. So it was like a, a actually a step up from Minus's real raspy, kind of crazy delivery. You know, it was like something totally different. And I'm just mind blown. So I'm glad you said it's like a personality thing because they had everything in line with Century Media, what, what Century Media does now and what they were doing then. It yeah. just never came together for them, man. Yeah, that's all it is. I mean, I I saw it when I was in that short amount of time that I was jamming with them. I remember thinking, like, you know, why why can't you guys just get along? Because you're like, you know, an amazing band. It would just go so much farther. But it's one of those things like a lot of bands suffer from. Even like you know the Chromax people say, why didn't the Age of Coral lineup stay together? You know, uh, through Best Wishes, and it's same deal. You know, the band too was many, great. yeah, too many personalities. You yeah, know, too many personalities. You know, if, if but at, at the same time, you think about it this way. If it wasn't for those personalities, they would have those been releases have been as good as they were. Yeah, no, absolutely. Not, you know, um, I, if I don't touch on this, I'll fucking I'll kick myself because it's something in hindsight that I should have thought of. There is a, a lot of Internet debate always on different things, because that's what the Internet's for is debating. Um, chronologically, we should have had this conversation earlier uh, from the time that we were just talking about when you first started going to shows. Uh-huh. Obviously, there's there's still Jay from Crackdown. There's all these monsters at CBGBs. 
what do you think Queens and your friends influence was on the actual pit itself? And like Jorge bringing the, I, I always say that Jorge and a number of some of the Queens guys brought a lot of the kicking to the forefront of New York hardcore mosh pits. Yeah. Those, 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 these guys, um, I mean, you got some creative dancers, <laughs> I'll yeah. say that, you know, and, and, and some of them came with equipment to the dance floor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We'll leave it at that equipment. <laughs> yeah. So some of them brought their gear in there, man. But uh, I, I would say that the dancing got scarier. Yeah. You know, when, 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 when the guys that I, that, that I was hanging out with, that I came up with yep. started dancing. I mean, I was never big into the dancing thing or the stage diving. I'm more like a musical guy. I like hearing the music. Um, but I did used to get close to the stage when I was a kid. And when these guys start dancing, I'm like, all right, I'm going to stand next to the stage or behind the stage. Cause these freaking guys are animals. <laughs> you know, there's always this, like this thing. And I always say like, for me, because I wasn't there at that time, it was like the Lou Hawks and stuff that were really like really advancing, like mosh technology into like straight up what it is now, which is like only karate. Yeah. 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 Cause I, I felt like I th- before, before our generation, it was almost like da- just dancing, you know, and everything yeah. the dancing style. And, and then I think with the uh, late eighties, early nineties, it started becoming like way more violent, you know what I mean? With the dancing and, uh, and not for nothing, man, but I, I feel like even though these days there's this weird, like horseshoe thing that happens. Yeah. Um, but I see the crowd killing thing that, to me, is even worse than what I used to see. I, I, I'd say we say the same thing. If they're taking some liberties, man, I would never let that happen to me. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I see that. I see that happen at shows, and I'm like, holy crap, man! I'm like, what, what the hell? I'm like, you're straight up trying to kill somebody. You know what I mean? But so much less fights than any other time beforehand. It's so oh, bizarre. Yeah. It's so bizarre. It is, but I think that's because you know the the new generation. You know, they're just probably better kids than we. Yeah. You know, not we, they weren't raised at home to think that you have to fight out in the street so they're not going to take it to the floor you know and that's kind of where i was getting at you're in manball you played in marauder and you played in 25 to life at some of the craziest times for that shit to just be like and i tell the young kids now i'm like you guys get upset when someone gets punched or something there were shows where every song was bullshit and every yeah, show yeah. you went to in the right city you're like this is going to be some bullshit yeah yeah, and, and it would be like, uh, I mean, you even see it. There's a demise video, I think, for uh, one song, like Calm Before the Storm. And I think you see Minus get up there before and introduce us and basically say no fights, you yeah. know, because it was one of those things where it was like a different fight almost for like every song sometimes. Yeah. You know, it, it was that crazy back then. Um, and like you said, these days you really don't see the fights like it used to have back then. But at the same time, back then, you get into fight with a dude, and then the next week you'd be back at the show with the same Absolutely. dude. Absolutely. Yeah, it's kind of laughing about it. Yeah, you're kind of like laughing about it. So it wasn't like people like really took it personal. It was just, you know, we're all like we're like Vikings. <laughs> yeah, I believe it. I uh I just think about with the evolution of what you saw, it'd be good to bring that up. And then you get in the mad ball at a perfect time for them. Was it a perfect time for you to join Mambo or were you kind of like, all right, let me see what I could do. Like how did, how did that get brought up to you and, and you jumped into it? It's weird. You know, you know, to be honest, I was trying to join Mambo for a long time. I was trying, I was trying, as soon as I knew stigma was, was leaving, I was trying to get in. So I originally wanted to get in 
for demonstrating my style, but it wasn't working out. Those guys wanted to be a one guitar band at the time. Um, you know, so I was doing my thing, you know, I end up in Marauder, you know, to be honest, after Marauder, I almost thought of not doing music. Um, then I remember uh, somebody came up to me from some Midwest metal magazine, I think it was called back in the day and told me that I should try out for Machine Head. I think Machine yeah. Head was, uh, they were looking for a guitarist. So that was on the back of my mind. I was thinking, I was like, you know what, maybe I'll just go out and, and you know, do those tryouts over there. Um, but then what happened was I got approached separately by Hoya and, and, and Maddie, letting me know that, you know, they were going to need a guitarist in the band. Maddie Eska, that's a big deal. Yeah. And Maddie, you know, Maddie's my boy, man. To this day, I consider him one of my best friends. And um, he was, uh, you, you know, he was looking to get out of it for a while. Not completely. He wanted to get more, be more like on the production side of things. And, uh, you know, he asked me if I, if I would take his place. And I was like, well, you know, I was like, be together with Hoya, you know, Freddie and these guys. I was like, hell yeah. And I was trying to be in the band forever. I would have liked it to be, you know, my dream would have been to for it to be me and Maddie dual guitars yeah. together. You know, that's what you hear on Hold It Down. There's two of us on there. He's one side on the other side. Um, but, it, you know, he had a, he had to do his thing. And I, 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 I bugged him a lot to try to stay in. <laughs> <laughs> but but it didn't work out that way. But um, to me, I was excited, dude. You know, when they when they called me up and I remember it was. I want to say Look My Way had just kind of come out. So yeah. most of my touring with Madball was for Look My Way, you know. Um, and Hardcore Again had changed so drastically just from the beginning of 25 to Life to Look My Way. It was like a totally starting yeah. to be a completely different vibes all over again. It seemed like it was going down. Again. Yeah, it was. I think there was like that crest that came and Look My Way just came right as the ball was dropping lower and the shift was a shift was there. And I don't know how it felt from your end, but it just, the, what was pure hardcore was separating so much, like pulling apart, you yeah. know, and I, and it was like, goes back to what we were talking about in the beginning of the nineties with the metallic influence, it was bringing people. But in fact, the metallic influence was pulling people away from regular hardcore shows. There's so many bands doing metal shit. It was all, its own offshoot shit, you know? Yeah, I want to say, you know, when Look My Way came out and we started doing the shows in the States, in Europe, the, the show stayed consistent. But in the States, I started noticing the scene was kind of dying. And, and I didn't know because I was so busy touring. In my mind, I was thinking, is it that they don't like the new record because it's a little it was a little more metallic? Or is it that the whole scene is kind of dying? <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, it was just a shift. Old Gar was out. Newer people were coming in. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's something I ended up realizing afterwards that everything started changing. But, you know, the irony of it was that a lot of people would say that that record was too metal, right? But <clears throat> what I, I ended up seeing later on was that within four years after Look My Way, everybody sounded 100 times more metal than that, and it wasn't a problem for anybody. Yeah. Well, that's exactly what happens is you guys do what you do for Look My Way, and everyone's like, oh, they're going too metal. And yeah, But yet... Yeah, yeah. Yeah, in, in hindsight, looking at like what ended up being one of the biggest, like, you know, things is that the more metal bands are the ones like the VODs and stuff, the Earth Crisis, what their records are coming out. That's the ones that the, the people outside of hardcore are gravitating most to. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, but it, it's weird because, like I said, you know, it's 
I wasn't sure what it was. You know, I ended up realizing afterwards that the scene was changing. But I, I know that some people had a problem with that record being so metallic, only for the scene to end up being way more metallic soon after. You know what I mean? Um, I feel like with Hold It Down, we we kind of went more. It, it's like Hold It Down sounds more like a hardcore record, but with a more metallic guitar sound. I used to say that Hold It Down was the last great record of that entire era. Yeah. Like even though even though it landed on the other side of the OOs, it ended up being like the swan song from that whole, whole era because yeah. everybody who was a peer with Madball wasn't playing like that anymore. You know, like Earth Crisis had gone so much further. VOD went so much further. Like all the peers that are playing at the same level of you guys just went in completely divergent different directions. And Madball literally was the one holding the holding it down. Yeah, there was a strong emphasis on that record. I know Freddie wanted, you know, he really wanted it to be a hard, like a real hardcore record. You know what I mean? And and uh, and I mean, I, I'd say we achieved it with that record. I mean, it's, absolutely. It's a I short mean, record. I mean, honestly, it's like an EP. It's so damn short. Um, it's heavy. The guitars sound metallic, but they sound dirty enough to you know to keep it within the hardcore realm. You know what I mean? I mean, I, I think we nailed it with that one, but it's um, it's definitely, I mean, honestly, not just because I was on it. I mean, I think it's a great hardcore record, you know, well, un unequivocally. Again, you can't put it as a 90s record, but it stands to be like the last swan song for that not for that period yeah. to me. Yeah. Yeah. No, it was definitely, you know, um, hey, it's something for me to be proud of. It's something for all of us that were in the band at that time to be proud of. You know, it's and it's one of those things like I can't say, oh, we knew it was going to be, you know, what it was because I had no idea. You, you know, it, it came out the way it did and we got lucky. Yep. <laughs> All I knew is that there was an emphasis. I would hear, you know, we, we would hear, you know, Hatebreed had satisfaction and we were like, wow, that's freaking hard. And it's like, you know, um, I remember thinking we got to be ourselves that hard, though. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like that intensity, you know. And uh, I, I, you know, I think we did it our own way. You know, I think it came out exactly the way we wanted to. Um, I don't think it came out that way because we knew how to exactly do it. But I think we achieved it. We got it was, it was organic. Yeah, it was organic. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't so planned. It was just like, hey, you know, this is what I want. We're hearing this and we want that intensity and we got to be a better version of ourselves. And it could have easily gone the wrong way, but it didn't. So. Manball, I mean, and then you put it against peers, especially with uh, talk about hate breed, blood for blood at the end of the 90s was really coming on strong and they went really towards the oi punk stuff. Manball really was the band that was still like, hey, we're out here representing for hardcore. And unfortunately, with Freddie having to go away, the band was slowly starting to not be able to do things. When did you pull out of Manball before he went away? Like, how, like how did the end of you doing Manball happen? The end, well, he was, um, he went away, I think, I believe, before the record came out. Okay. Um, he got out, and I did a tour of Europe and a few shows in the States, and then I ended up pulling out. But, you know, one of the main reasons, like, when I ended up pulling out, it was a tough decision because those dudes, to me, were my family, which yeah. I still consider them family. But most of it was financial. You know what I'm saying? It, it was, it was uh, one of those things where I, I really – 
um, I couldn't pay my bills. Yeah. I mean, and you think about it, we talked about, you know, now you're, now you're not 20, you're, what are you almost 30? Almost. Yeah. Almost. I think I was 27 or something like that. And it gets pretty hard, dude. You know, you got to pay your rent and, and all this stuff and you got to go on the road. It's uh, it's, it's tough, man. And for a little while, I wasn't, I mean, I wasn't exactly sure the whole thing with Freddie, I wasn't sure if he was going to go back in or if he was going to be able to do the band, you know? Yeah. It was it was a bad time, man. I'm sure you know he'd agree to it too. Everything was kind of up in the air. We didn't know what was going to happen with the band, and then you know it just so happens that one of the best records, you know, we end up doing one of the best records, and and all this stuff happens, you know. But the scene was, you know, not just that. The scene was also at a point where, um, even during Hold It Down, it wasn't doing too good. So no. that's where the financial problems really came from not from his situation, but from the scene in general. I mean, I've had people tell me they didn't even know that record came out. <laughs> well, that, that's great. To me, that's crazy. Cause I know like uh, that record came out in 2000. So at the same time you're dealing with, I always call it the rich, me and Max Morton will say the rich hall era of CBGBs <laughs> where like, where like the converges. And I mean, the biggest, the biggest band that summer was a mad ball. It was fucking American nightmare being a small band and a year later they were the biggest, like we you know one of the biggest bands at hardcore, like hardcore had a paradigm shift. Yeah. Just, just the way, same way in 1990 hardcore had a paradigm shift. Like, like we talked about GB, you know, sort of up oh, now we're going to do quicksand, you know, like the paradigm shift came at the moment. You guys write like one of the penultimate New York hardcore records to date, because that's the way shit happens. And I think, it's the unfortunate nature that for you guys, it might be a magnum opus situation where like, here's the fucking record. And it's like, oh, yeah. wait, where, where'd hardcore go? Where, where? It, it oh. happens, man. I mean, I would say I, I would equate it to like when Slayer did God hates us all, which like, I, I think is a, an amazing record, but I mean, I didn't listen to it when it came out. I mean, I, you know, I was listening to newer stuff and then I caught on to that like afterwards, you know what I mean? And my last, uh, my last record was the first Paul Bostaff record, the Divine Intervention. Right, I, right. I saw them with the, and actually, funny, you said Machine Head because I saw Machine Head and Biohazard as the it was Machine Head, Biohazard, Slayer on that tour. That was like a fucking wild tour. And yeah, then I saw that too. That was dope. And I even seen Slayer. Actually, they had Mashuga in the Electric Factory in the late '90s. And then Terry King got to me lamer and lamer as a personal person, like a, as a personality. He came out more. And I'm like. Dude, I fucking hate this guy. Like nothing, nothing good came from Slayer to me. Like I, and I, I even stopped listening. I know the song "God Hates Us All" because it was so prevalent in the metal press. Right. But right. like, I, I said, if it's not the old shit, I, I, I hate, I hate Kerry King. I still hate him. It's tough, man. And that, <laughs> that's, that's the problem I think with getting to know your idols sometimes. And uh, I mean, uh, who knows? People might say that about me. Seeing me in an interview, they might say that guy's a freaking tool. <laughs> well, I, I think there's like a public's face that metal guys who are smart, like nobody in Iron Maiden get shit on because they're right. all men. They're all men, you know, like, yeah. but you know, also they, they don't really talk about themselves. And like, in meaning like sometimes when, you know, guys like Kerry King, you know, when you start, maybe they just let people know too much about themselves, Yeah, you know, and then you start getting turned off by it. But, you know, one, one thing I'll say, like I've met the dude before and I, he's, he's chilled on stage. I remember, you know, being on tour with Madball and him and Lemmy, like watching us play at a festival, you know, and it always seemed like, you know, very cool guy. And he was in tune to, 
he he was he knew what was up with hardcore, you know, back then. I got I got awkwardly introduced to um Jeff because of Warren one time because we were hanging ah. out. And he's like, Oh, this is like casually, like, oh, this is Jeff. And I'm like, hey man, nice, nice to meet you. And then he's like, Oh, Joe does some hardcore shows. He's like, that's cool. And I was like in my head going, Fuck, like I gotta get out of here. I gotta run like fucking this Hanneman. This is the fucking king. Like, yeah. and, and I went to go back to that, thinking about it, that slayer, uh, you said like mechanical. I think that like almost like marching sound. In in the fucking um, yeah, fuck. Now I can't believe it. What the war ensemble? Right. I don't know if another band would make a like percussive sound, make it sound like a march that way. But I remember that video, and just I remember that era of Slayer just being like, nobody does this better to the point where I don't know if you remember the Clash of the Titans tour, the opening band that I saw, uh, Philly. Allison Chains got booed off stage. And I always say to kids, because that's what era that I was growing up, like, oh, look, Allison Chains. Okay, like, yeah, well, I, I love Slayer. And they got fucking booed off stage for fucking Slayer. Fuck you. Like, to yeah. me, that was Slayer. So, like, seeing Kerry King later on just become like some like lame ass, trying to like, to me, like, port the Ozfest world. I'm like, oh, man, that sucks. Like, they were, yeah. to, to me, I, I hold Slayer's early, re- I mean, all the records in high regard up until that point that I'm like, oh, man, they're doing a gimmick. But so, anyway. Back to the the Madball departure. You depart the Madball because you're becoming an adult. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, pretty, pretty much. <laughs> but I have to, let's, because you kind of slid that. Oh, I went to Wall Street. I know Mark Porter and also um, Anthony Kaminao, Killing Time, were Wall Street people. Were you running other New York hardcore people at that time? Previous, went like with the, because the Wall Street, and when, like, when it was at its high point before the 2001 stuff? Well, you know, when I worked out there, I ran into a lot of people, um, but some of them were like messengers or, or whatever. Like I like I used to run into Ken Chalk over there in Wall Street. I'm not sure what he was doing. I think he was doing some graphic design type of thing. But he, I know he worked down there because I ran into him at Federal Hall one day and chilled with him um, right by the stock market. Um, I see John Joseph running up and down Wall Street on his bike. Yeah, he was a messenger at that time, right? He, yeah, he was, was everywhere. Sob, I see Sob going up and down. He was also a bike messenger. Um, maybe Ralphie disassociate. I think I might have seen down there a few times. Um, Harry, 25 to life, Fuck worked it. at a law firm down there. Um, Dave, Hoya's brother. Oh shit, he was down he there. He worked at a company with me, Spearleads and Kellogg over there on Wall Street as well. Um, there was a lot, there was a few of us down there. Yeah, there was a few of us down there. You know, I dude, I I liked it back in the day. I like, you know, um Matt Henderson did some time down there too. You know, not in, not working in finance, but he worked for a company down there in the financial district for a bit. What was that uh what was your segue towards that? Like uh when you get into trying to grow up, did you have that did you have that want to get into finance and 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 like the more professional setting like in a business there? Like how do you go from being the dude that hangs in a park? with a gang and you're doing all the wild shit and you're doing all the shit to being a guy that can easily turn to the corporate face. Like, how does that happen for you? You know what? I knew a guy that was the supervisor for the messenger department at Fidelity Investments. So he, he needed a messenger and he asked me to, uh, he asked me to go work. So I was like, Oh dude, I was like, what do you do? And he goes, Oh dude, you got a book bag and you just carry stocks and bonds and you go walk all over and basically carry them. What's that? Physically carry them? Physically carry. Yeah, back then oh, in a book bag. Yeah, oh, you know, so fucking cool. Certified checks, everything. So I was like, dude, I could do that. I was like, dope. So 
I start working for him, and then eventually I became a supervisor there. Um, then eventually from there, you know, opportunities would come up because you meet people when you're a messenger, you know, you're going all over the place to, to different firms and stuff. And then I just started bouncing around, you know, all of a sudden I'm working as a computer operator at like Bankers Trust and then Spear Leads and Kellogg. And um, to me, I just, what turned me on to it was, it was, I, to me, it wasn't hard to go to work and make money. I know some dudes are like, yo, I can't get up at five in the morning or six in the morning and go to work. I could. I mean, to me, I'm like, oh, you paying me? All right, let's go. <laughs> you know what I mean? It, it, to me, it wasn't a problem. And I enjoyed some of the stuff, you know, even like working at Merrill Lynch, you know, I was, you know, I was in uh, operations and, you know, doing work with fraud, you know, fraud analysts and stuff like that. It's, it's interesting stuff to me, you know? So then when you get to the point where you have to go out and do this, what do you do? I would just tell the companies I got to go. That was it. Yeah. And that's how that whole thing, you know, like I mentioned with Merrill Lynch, I would tell them, you know, I, I, I was trying to be cool. And I told him, I said, listen, you know, I'll resign because I'm in this band. And, and they said no. But um, before that, like I mentioned earlier, you know, when I when well, the way I used to do it was to do it as a contractor, as a temp. But what happens with that is that once they like you, they end up hiring you anyway. And they're like, well, why don't you just come work for us? You know what I mean? Um, and I did that a few times. But earlier and earlier, a few of the jobs, I wasn't really touring the way I was. So I was able to hold those jobs for a while longer. You know, like with 25 to Life, I mean, we had the European tour that I did and we did a West Coast tour. But it wasn't like uh, like during my era with Madball where those guys were like, eight months on and off during a year. Yeah. You know, that, that was busy stuff. So what do you do? Like, what is your like move? You just go, Hey, tomorrow, I'm just going to start looking to get this job. Or did you go immediately into it? Did you have a procedure where you're like, Hey, you know what? I'm going to put my full focus into no longer doing the bands. Like, did you go to them with like a pitch? Like, Hey, tour and stuff's going to end. I need to step it up. Like, what did you do to get into that? With, with the band, I try to not let the job affect the band. Yeah, <laughs> and then those dudes, when I'm saying like when the band was, when you said, hey, I got to step out of the band, oh. is that what your move? Was you like step in and say, hey, listen, I ain't touring no more. Put more responsibility. Like, how did you shift into that? Oh, you mean how did I tell them? Yeah, not, that's the, not telling the band, but how did you like, because you're saying like, I got to make more money. Now you're doing the band and you're working, but like, did you go into the office? Go, All right, I'm done touring. Put me, put more responsibility. Because I know now like, you're 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 far along in your career now but like yeah. what was the what was the impetus to give them okay we can actually put rob into more things now yeah so you, you know when um when i stopped doing madball I, I of course you know i was at merrill lynch i stayed there for a few years but I, honestly i got out of the whole financial thing and i went in more into insurance because uh you know well, there was more money involved in it so, you know, the, the things that I do now have nothing to do with what I used to do in Wall Street. I mean, these days I'm, I'm an auto damage adjuster. I go out and I look at wrecks, you know, that that's oh, shit. basically what I do. How did you roll into that? My uh, my brother-in-law used to work at Geico. And uh, when Geico came to New Jersey, because I live in New Jersey now, um, he said, hey, you know what? You should put in for a job. He's like, they give you a car. You go out and you, you drive around and look at wrecks. You work from home. And I was like, oh, yeah. I was like, I'll do that. <laughs> I was like, I'll try that. So I went to go work for Geico. And then soon after that, I stayed at Geico for a few years. And then I bounced to where I'm at now um, 
a few a few of the guys that I worked with, we all left to another carrier. Now, was there any impetus with the, what you have now with the family? Were you even thinking family? I know you guys, you and Casey were together at the time. Like, was that something in the back of your mind? Like, well, I'm going to eventually have to start a family. Like, how did how did that that ball all start rolling for you? Absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, it got to a point where, you know, that was the whole thing. I, I knew I had to do better financially. I knew that eventually, you know, we'd have a family. Um, I feel that definitely I made the right choice. I mean, I have a job where, you know, I'm, I'm very fortunate. I, I work half the day or sometimes the entire day from my house. So when, when the family needs me, I'm here, you know, I'm, I'm usually here to help them out with stuff. And it's a, you know, it's, it's a real, it's a real job. It's a, I help people doing this. You know what I mean? It's like you, you get your car wrecked. Beto comes to save the day. <laughs> oh shit. I should have fucking known that. Fuck. <laughs> Don't wreck your car, bro. <laughs> so as you're becoming what we would call like the average human, the average normal person, was it hard? Did you feel like you were pulling away from something or did you keep your feet in there? Like, how did, did you have a balance point? Cause I know some people go like Jules from side by sides. Like, yeah, I never even put up pictures of my band. My, my kids didn't even know I was in a band until I had to do this damn reunion show. Like oh. as you were shifting from Beto from New York and Madball and 25 to life and all this stuff to being, Hey Beto, I'm going to be a family man. And I got all this going on. Like, how did you find balance to, or accept that, you know, hardcore is not going to be your main focus anymore. Believe it or not, dude, I never stopped listening to hardcore. And I don't uh, mean stop, but like, how did you mentally go? Like, okay, like the pullout part, like, you know, like, yeah, it, it's well to me, it, it's weird, man. I was always able to to do the crazy jobs, and um, you know, jobs that you wouldn't think a somebody in the hardcore scene would do, and and then kind of like maintain being a hardcore kid at the same time. I don't, I don't think that it was a hard. Balance. I mean, the the hardest balance for me was when when we had kids, because when we had kids and it was kind of I can't we we both had to step away from hardcore for a while, like going to shows and stuff like that. Um, although one thing I will say is, is that uh, when Caden was like a year old, maybe not even a year, we rolled them up to uh, the wave in Asbury Park for a Marauder Leeway show <laughs> on the boardwalk. You know what I mean? So we try to. You know, we try to keep the hardcore in there. Um, maybe that's why he likes Leeway so much. So, Caden uh, coming into your life, did some people, like obviously I had my kids super young. Did you have this thought where you're like, I'm going to raise this kid around hardcore? Or like, I were you just so immersed in just being a dad and family that you didn't think about like his placement in hardcore? I didn't, I didn't, you know. We, when we were in the car, if we were driving the kids somewhere, we'd be listening to hardcore. I mean, you know, we we both listen to pretty much like the same bands and you know, they're either going to be Leeway or Madball playing in there, all that stuff. And um, I don't know if uh, I don't know if he liked it back then. You know what I mean? But he was I know he liked Leeway because he would sing along sometimes to that stuff. But um I don't think I intentionally exposed him to it to get him into it. I was just listening to what I like to listen to, you know, same thing with Casey, but um, it, I mean, dude, I, I'd say it was your show. You know, this is hardcore 2017 when we did the reunion. That's so sick and so awesome at the yeah. same time. <laughs> that, that's, that's what did it for him, you know, and that's what made him, I mean, dude, he, all he listens to, I mean, granted he listens to metal, but the kid yeah. leaves hardcore, you know, he loves it. 
So obviously I didn't have my podcast when that was going down, but there was this weird shit for people not listening or didn't, wasn't exposed to this where like Rick to life had gotten to a point where he was like openly antagonizing stick man, <laughs> like openly antagonizing stick man at a bizarre time. And it's not bizarre for negative reasons, it's like a random time where young kids were like, yo, I know Rick's fucking crazy, but they got some fucking riffs. So how did you get pulled back into 25 to life for this whole thing? 25. I want to say, you know, good crap. Trying to remember the order of things, but I, I want to say that I jammed out with those guys before Stickman was in the fold. Um, they asked me to come and just jam out, jammed out, and it sounded amazing, right? Yeah. Um, then I wasn't sure who who Seth was trying to get to sing. Actually, I think at the time I might have thought that he just wanted to get together. Um, then uh, they told me they were going to get Stickman in there. They went to a practice with him, and I, I saw, I think they put up like a video or something like that on Facebook. And, you know, me and Stick, you know, we've been boys forever, you know? Yeah. So I was thinking, I said, well, you know what, if he's going to do it, then, then I, I'm going to jump in there as my boy. You know what I'm saying? I, I, I mean, honestly, I knew Stickman better than any of those guys. <laughs> you know what I mean? Well, you were, I mean, obviously, for those who don't know, you moved from Queens to New Jersey because that's where New York hardcore guys go to grow up. <laughs> they moved right. to New Jersey. And, then, and, and, and it's crazy because I think when New York shows slow down, you too, because like the best shows I see Manball at in the early 2000s were in fucking New Jersey. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Stone Pony shows. Yeah, like New Jersey, New Jersey at the end of the 90s into the early 2000s really had because not only just because it's the most densely populated fucking state in the country, but there's so many hardcore bands and so many hardcore people like that was like the last fort where you knew whether it was the Birch Hill, the fucking Stone Pony, the fu- all these places, you knew these were the spots that still had awesome hardcore shows. Yeah, you had the so Pipeline, you- the Pipeline oh, I love that. Well. That was my favorite. Yeah, oh, Studio One, you know, New, New, New Jersey definitely, uh, you know, I want to say in the, in the 90s, New Jersey kept it alive. I think that there was definitely more spots here in Jersey than there was in New York, you know, and, um, you know, for, for me, like, like living out, living out here, um, I mean, I ended up, I was living in Queens and somehow I ended up living with Loki in New Brunswick. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think at one point in time, I think New York hardcore shifted West because Loki had the tattoo shop. He was doing them shows at the down yeah. under club. Yeah. 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 Actually, one of the coolest uh, Killing Time shows of all time was Killing Time Vision at the Down Under Club. That was fucking yeah. insane, man. That, that place was, was dope, except for the stupid pillar in front of the stage. For some reason, they were just like, yo, great club. Guess what? Pillar's got to be here. They're fucking all up. Yeah, yeah. I remember it was annoying as shit if you were on that side, too. Yeah. That's all I remember about that place was the pillar. And I'm like, yo, somebody's going to get freaking effed up here, man, for sure. But um, I, I, I remember, though, you know, once I was living here, it, it was uh, it always seemed there were so many bands. You know what I'm saying? Like even like when I was living in New Brunswick, over there, you got the God forbid guys growing up, and then they end up living in there with Loki and I. And you know, you start seeing that. That's when I started seeing the new guard kind of pop up. You know, with those guys. They sent um, me a tape in the mail, and I and I talked to Dallas on the telephone, and I'm like, so like, what's your guys' deal? Like, what's going on here? And he's like dude, just fucking love at the gates and just want to play some shows. 
And when they showed up, we were just like mind blown. Like, wait, this is four brothers and the dude who looks like he plays a saxophone in the Blues Brother band. Yeah. And they're the fucking sickest shit ever. And they played so many hardcore shows yeah. until they got to where they're at. Metal it was fucking awesome, man. And yeah, because, totally. Yeah, they, they love hardcore. I mean, when, you know, when when I met them, it was all um, I remember them asking me a lot of questions about Marauder. It might have been right around the time I did Marauder right afterwards or something i didn't realize that they were such big fans it used to be a studio called big noise in new brunswick and they'd always be practicing there and they'd be practicing marauder songs and stuff like that um you know but when you're talking about at the gates it's funny because when you know Corey and byron lived with us and that's all i would be hearing is at the gates coming out of their room all the time you know and uh but i i think that they definitely did their own thing with that style. Those guys that, you know, I give it to them. And then all those other bands, um, like even like kill switch, which I didn't get into them until way afterwards, but realized, but you, played, but you guys played with overcast and all the prerequisite bands they were already in, you know, like, we that's- did, yeah. So yeah, overcast, you know, with Brian, we used to play a lot of shows with them when I was in 25. Um, well, that guy, Adam, switch, the guitar player, Adam, he was yes. in overcast and he was in all these other things. That's a cool shit about, this is the thing I get mad at when kids are like, oh, well, metal core zone thing. It's like, no, motherfucker. It starts with exactly what we were saying earlier in the episode. That fucking East Coast Assault is still, to me, the platform for modern day, what the dorks would call metal core, which, yeah, yeah. which is just metal. It's not fucking metal core. It's fucking metal. You got a barricade. You got long hair. You have fan passes. That's fucking metal. But the people who came from the, the mid, the early to mid 90s hardcore, and then weird Massachusetts halls that you guys had to play in 25 to life. Those guys and the Converge guys and everybody, those guys were the platform and the blueprint for what the metal, the American metal scene is now to me. And it came nah, yeah, from hardcore. Cause it, th- those guys kind of like perfected it. You know, I remember um, playing, I think it was the tune in with, with overcast. And I remember them dudes doing a perfect cover of To Live Is To Die by Metallica. And I remember just thinking to myself, I'm like, first, I go, it's kind of weird to cover an instrumental. I'm like, but God damn, they do it better than Metallica. I was like, Dude, they were so, them guys were just like metalheads who just took it to the furthest extreme, man. Yeah. Like, and they just they had it so down point. And then uh, I don't know if you know this, but Howard, who would go on to sing and kill switch, he was in Blood Has Been Shed, which is a band. Yes. That, and we, Punishment played a bunch of shows with them. And then next thing you know, homeboys in Killswitch, and you're like, to me, Killswitch and Lamb of God obviously coming from the hardcore scene. Those are the two biggest American metal bands. Like to me, pure and Randy's an old hardcore dude. It's it's fucking incredible to see them not. I mean, obviously, I've seen Lamb of God play hardcore shows. You've seen Killswitch play like technically hardcore shows. Right. They're straight up fucking stadium sized fucking metal bands. It's oh, crazy. Yeah, yeah. No. Yeah. They're huge, man. Those those bands flourished, and you know. Rightfully deserved, man, because it, they they do they're the best at what they do. So, where do you stand when you start hearing all this metal? And are you still trying to play at home? Are you still like riffing for fun before? I guess years before you get into twenty five, like you got to still keep up your chops, or did you put the guitar away completely. You mean after after, after Manball before the twenty five to life starts back up? I didn't, you know what? I, I, I never stopped, bro. I remember, uh, you know, funny Chico used to live Chico Fury five was living like maybe like five blocks from me. And I remember Chico bought a drum set. He bought amps and he put it all in his garage and I would go in there and jam out with Chico. And sometimes it would be, sometimes we'd be jamming kill switch songs or a shadows fall songs and th- stuff like that. So 
I dug the new stuff that was coming out. You know what I mean? So, you know, I wasn't I wasn't coming out to shows as much and stuff like that, but I was still had my ear to it and I was still playing my guitar. I never really I can't really say that I ever stopped playing. Yeah, I never stopped. What do you, do you think of between the time when you stopped playing and you started playing again? Was there records ever coming out that made you go, what the fuck is going on with hardcore? We're peaking. You're like, oh, shit. Was there stuff beyond just like that metallic stuff that was getting your air? Or was it most of the metal stuff that you were getting back into? Um, Probably mostly the metal stuff that I was getting into. I mean, once in a while, I'll hear something. You know, the, the problem with, with me that... I think like with hardcore, it got to a time like right now we're in a time with hardcore where I think of the bands are beginning to sound very different from each other again. Like in the earlier days, I, I could tell the difference between the bands again. But I want to say that around the the early 2000s, everybody began to sound the same to me. It seemed like everybody was kind of copying the same formula. So I was listening to more metal bands. Um, it, it was... Uh, you know, and maybe it's just me, man, but a, a lot of the bands during that era, like I'd say like 2005 and on, a lot of them, I couldn't tell the difference anymore. No, you're, uh, there was like an entire copycat scene. I think it was like a game of what do we have to do to get on these tours to get bigger? And then like, what do we have to do to write this shit? Which is again, where like Kill Switch coming out. And I actually, just them having the tongue in cheek thing once they got big enough to do like the Dio cover with the sick video, like yeah, yeah, yeah. all that kind of stuff was like a good fuck you. Yeah. 2000s for American metal is weird because basically the best American metal bands really did just rip off the Swedish stuff. They did. <laughs> you know, no, like yeah. all the melodies that came from the, the, the entire Swedish scene really took over. And, you know, I also, um, you know, that was a dormant time when Carcass wasn't playing. Carcass is one of my favorite metal bands. So I'm like, well, 2000s, <laughs> you know, the 2000s, no Carcass. You can see what happens to metal. Me you too, know? Dude, I, I, I was telling Caden the other day about I walked into I walked into a Carcass show kind of like by accident. When Heartwork came out, we used to hang out at the uh, at the limelight a lot on Sundays. And I remember walking into the limelight just because that's where I went on a Sunday. And the first thing I hear is Berry Dreams kicking. I was like, holy shit. <laughs> that's my, I had two CDs that were physically, I had tapes forever and a couple LPs. But the two CDs I got on the same day, they, they came out on the same day, was the Pantera Far Beyond Driven and the Carcass. My cousin picked it out for me because my mom graduated from college. And he's like, yo, we got this present for you. And it was the Carcass and the Pantera. And to this day, like the, 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 Heartwork to me is one of the greatest metal masterpieces. I can still put oh, yeah. that's another one that I still have on CD and the actual CD that I got 30 years ago. I still have because that just changed my entire idea of metal. And I, I was big into the nuclear blast. I really liked Napalm Death. I was really into some of the faster stuff that some of the death metal bands were into. But when they shifted gears and went into the melodic stuff, but still having the fast and the blast beats, I was like, I've never heard a band be able to do those kind of transitions that way, man. It was fucking fantastic. Yeah, it was, they, I mean, I was at the carcass before heart work, but when I heard heart work, I was like, damn, these guys sound like, I mean, it was really next level because they still, they were still heavy as hell. And then like these like super sweet solo parts would uh, come in where like all of a sudden the whole feel of the song was different. And then they would go back super heavy. 
you know, well, they, I think they picked up some of the new album stuff where the two separate, like you hear it on the Judas Priest stuff where KK Downing and the other guy will change off on the solos. Like yeah, they, were, yeah. they weren't afraid of what the crowd was up to. They're like, we're writing this fucking song and we're going to, there's almost where you have to wonder if one's trying to outdo the other on some of them songs, man. Yeah, Bill Steer and Micah Mott. That's those it. Mike, guys, yeah, those yeah, guys yeah. were dope combo for sure. But, you know, like that, that heartwork record, I remember I had it on cassette. And you ever talk to Warren, ask him how about how much we wore that tape out in his four Taurus driving out to the 25 to life shows. That's all we were listening to, man. And we, we would go through the whole tape and be like, yo, what do you want to do? Yo, put it back on. <laughs> nah, and what's funny is, is there's still young kids who haven't checked it out yet. So hopefully they listen and pop it in because it's it's a, a fucking masterpiece. Oh, yeah, dude. And look, a lot of the stuff that's out today, you can hear you can hear the carcass influence, you know, for Absolutely. instance, like, like I love knock loose. I hear carcass and knock loose. I mean, I don't know if other people hear it, but I can hear it, you know? Well, I think if they don't know what it is, there's definitely the laid down point because of how impactful that record would be to everybody else that I right. think those guys draw a lot from metal, but metal was changed when they put that out. Right. Like right. everybody had to like gear towards them. Then they did that weird rocket in the free world. Fucking. I don't know how the hell they did that. You know, what's going on here? I don't know. Well, <laughs> I like the work picture though, so it's funny. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah I think I think I think what happens in the modern era, and I tell these young kids like anything old sounds new because no one's listening to the old stuff. You know, like I, I say this about the young hardcore bands, they're not jamming on Black Sabbath or jamming to Metallica, so they're not learning this prerequisite riffing. They're not learning, you know, like they have to hear it and then like. 10 years later, whatever those bands are playing it. Yeah. You know, like I think all these younger bands that I, that I hear and see, they're not even thinking of those old records. And so to them, Heartwork's not even on the radar yet. And it's like, dude, that's like a fucking blueprint. If you want to be the shredder, or if you just want to play some of the craziest composed fucking metal riffs. Yeah. It's, you know, everything comes from something, you know what I mean? And, you know, that's something I realized even like, uh, like when I was a kid, I used to think that Metallica was the most original band. I used to be like, where did these guys come up with their riffs? And then, you know, some dude put up some, some YouTube video showing where Metallica got their, their riffs from. And, and a lot of the stuff sounds very similar. I mean, it didn't seem like they changed it that much, but I, I think that a lot of times, um, like I said, everything comes from something. There's got to be some type of influence. Um, a lot of uh, a lot of kids would probably sound more original if they picked up riffs from those older bands than from the current bands. Yeah, unequivocally, because they're taking the genuine article back to like the first generation, yeah. whereas like 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 we were saying with the God forbid thing, they were trying to sound like out the gate at the gate. So if you're a God forbid fan. And you pick up a guitar, you're trying to sound like God forbid, which those guys were trying to play like at the gates. Whereas if you go back to the at the gates, yes, you know, that's at the gates, another band that's like one of the bands. Like, I get mad if I don't see them play live. Actually, I hate metal shows now because cell phones. I don't know if you've been to a metal show, like, I don't want to see 4,000 cell phones. I saw it, I went to see Machine Head right before the, the pandemic lockdown in Webster Hall, and that's when I noticed everybody, everybody it, had the God uh, forbid you watch the show instead of taking. Uh, 45 minute video on your cell phone. I, I don't understand it. All right, we're getting off topic from the 25 to life. So, do you remember who called you first? Like, hey, let's jam. Like, what was going on that brought you back into this whole thing? Into into what band? Into 25. 25. To life? Yeah. 
Um, who called me to say let's jam was Seth. Fuck yeah. So, the most amazing, somewhat autistic music, music fucking savant. He yes. remembers so much cool shit. Did you like playing with him drum wise? I know I, I know uh like did you like did he, he you left right when he first joined the band a little bit, right? 25 the first time. Like you you guys didn't do like three years together. You did like barely a year together. You guys did that the EP, right? And that was it? Yeah, we did. I didn't play on, on the believe it or not, I didn't play on Strength Through Unity. But okay. I, I thought you I thought I, I I thought I'd seen you at that time with that. So okay. No, you did. Well, what happened was we were in the band to write that. But oh. I, I left the band like two weeks before they recorded it. Yeah, we saw you. The last time I seen you play with 25 to Life was this weird show in like outside of York County, Pennsylvania. Yeah. And I remember uh, someone in the crew basically being like, this is going to be the last time you're going to see us with 25 to Life. And I remember being like, what's that mean? And the next time we seen 25, it was Fred and different people. Like, Damn, they fucking yeah. left. <laughs> Holy shit. I know. It was weird because it was, you know, we uh, – we did, we, we did, a, we wrote that, we wrote that record. I mean, we probably had it for like a year before we recorded it. Cause I've even seen wetlands videos where we're playing uh, a few of those songs. But um, when we went out to, to California soon after that is when I left and they, they were going right into the studio. The time I was already booked with Dean to start recording that. And I was going to still come back. Um, I was asked to come in and do the solo for turning point. Um, if you hear turning point on string through unity, you'll hear that there's a long part in there that's empty It's empty because I was supposed to come in and do the solo. But last minute, I guess Rick had a, a second thought and said, forget it. Don't come in. I guess he was pissed off that I left the band or something like that. But, um, yeah, that music was written with me and Warren, you know, but what who ended up playing on it was, uh, Mike Heinzer. You know? Oh, that's right. Mike Heinzer who's now yeah. deep in, he was always, I, that's other thing that's cool about the pipeline is, and I know you know this because you were there at a lot of the Thursdays. Anyone could be in any band at any time. Like Twenty Five to Life played with Mike Heinzer and random bulldoze dudes a couple times just because Rick's like, "Yo, let's jump up and do a set. Let's do some songs." Right. Like there was this, and actually, in, in in even before that, New York Harker had a couple moments with different venues. I seen it at Castle Heights. I seen it at the Wetlands. Where like. A couple guys might know a couple songs and the singers there. Yo, let's just jump up and do some songs. And that's completely far now. There's no more of that. There's no more like random jump up, man. I miss that. I know. It, it's it's definitely, you know, it, it, the scene has taken into its own form. <laughs> it's definitely it's definitely a little different from back in the day. But you know what, man? It, it, you know, I, I, I like what it's turned into, though. You know, it's um, I have the memories I think that we have from the way that the shows were back then, it was just a different time. Well, you know, yeah, it was a completely different time. I mean, if you think about it, like we were, we, you know, we were talking about even the fact with uh, no cell phones, you know what I mean? So, you know, you have everybody learning the lyrics at home, you know, they got the demo and they're reading the stuff and they'll call their boy to say, you'll meet me at the show. And then you're stoked and you're singing along. And then you're probably not going to talk to your boy again for like another week. <laughs> well, so it's good you say this there's this old comp i think um john awkward thought put it out and there's a live recording of a song from 25 life called beat down for existence oh that's an old one yeah there's no lyrics ever written down it was all the only extent thing that i've ever seen i don't know if there's like band only owned recordings of the track uh-huh but 
I just remember because it's alive. This is alive. I forget what is alive at blah blah blah, but it's John Uncle Thought. There's a bunch of bands on the thing, and Rick must have submitted like, "Oh yeah, a ticket from the soundboard" because that was a big thing back then, like soundboard recordings. Uh-huh. Do you remember anything about Beatdown for Existence? I do remember the song. I don't. It had such a crazy metallic, and it was kind of fast for considering it's a like you know it, it is a prerequisite beatdown song. There's a breakdown towards the end. Yeah, yeah. I think we were gonna do that when we did the reunion. We were thinking of doing that song, and one of the guys talked us out of doing it for some reason. Probably because they worried that only nerds would know what it is, but it's still like one of the coolest twenty five life songs. I, I, I think maybe the reason why we didn't end up bringing it back is because we probably felt that not too many people knew about it. It's kind of like one of those songs that like you know about it, but a lot of people probably never heard it before. It's like a demo track. Yeah, I mean, essentially what it was. I think they're just like, oh, yeah, we're going to do it a comp. All right, take it off the, you know, take it off yeah. their thing. Um, that, that's, I like the way Rick sang back then better. Dude, so uh, let's let's drop back there. I said this and I got, I had three people arguing with me and there was a time before he tried to be too much like Roger. Right. There was a time when you could actually hear a lot of what he was saying, and I don't know why he shifted. Did you guys ever be like, yo, Rick, what are we doing here? Like, like was anybody ever like say, hey, like, because I I, I have old live demos from like the earlier period, uh-huh. and he was way more clear. Yeah, he um, I don't know when he decided to shift, but I did mention it to him a few times, you know, and I would bust his chops about it. <laughs> but uh you know, I like, I definitely liked his earlier style a lot better. You know, I thought it fit the band better, but you know, he, you know, whatever he made his decision and it kind of like snuck up. Like, I don't remember exactly when he started singing the way he did, but you know, the crazy thing is, is that I did listen to the last 25 life record that he did. And I thought it was some of his best vocals. Which one? The one, uh, was it the loyalty commitment, blah, blah, blah? The, the one with like a fist and like planet Earth or something. Yeah, I think uh, I, I seen uh, Edward from Good Life gave us a bunch of the things. We played with 25 to Life, Shadow uh-huh. Realm did in Europe, and he gave us a bunch of them. And I don't think we ever listened to it because at that point in time, Rick was getting like bizarre, weird. Like we played with him in France and he was like fucking <laughs> just being Rick. You know, like it was cool to play with 25 to Life in France, but it was right. like. We're in Paris with 25 to life. This is fucking weird. You know, like it was, yeah, it was definitely. I mean, I know that Bobby Hamble, I think, plays a solo on one of those songs. Well, he actually still got like he had Paul Bearer do so. Like, he did, there's a lot of later 25 to life records that my young boys, dude, yeah. you never heard this? I'm like, dude, like, I'm, I'm telling you, man, like, I tapped out. Like, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. like it, it, for me, it taps out. Like, there's a couple tracks from like the friendship, loyalty, commitment. There's a couple tracks. I mean, a couple, I mean, three. And then it's like, dude, if you're not playing the shit that I grew up on, I, I'm I'm out because I don't understand anything he says past like past the EP, really. He because it, it just became just really just you can't even understand what the fuck he's saying. Yeah, it's weird, man. And you know, with with us, you know, with me when I started when we did the reunion, I didn't realize how much stuff they had done after we left. <laughs> like I, I looked at the discography, I was like, God damn! I was like, you know, there's really like a lot of stuff in there. And Fred was in the band for a good amount of time after I left you know, and, and uh, cooked up some some pretty good stuff. But, um, you know, when, when we did it, it was a lot easier to stick to what I already knew, you know, than, than that other material, to the earlier stuff. Do you have fun 
And it's a dumb thing to say, but like, did you like actually have fun doing it? Or were you like pensive, like in hindsight, like thinking about it? Like, was it about 25 to life? Was it about you going out and playing again? Like, where was your head and mindset going into it? It, it was definitely fun. But here's the thing. I, I, I wanted people to hear 25 to life, but I knew that it couldn't be done with Rick. Um, it just can't happen, you know, and I'm sure he knows that. And, and actually, you know, I, him and I were still talking in the beginning when, when this reunion thing was going on. Um, talked to him a few times on the phone. Things were all screwed up, but, you know, I'd give him some advice here and there. And, you know, he was like, oh, Beto, you know, I'm all right with it. I understand why you can't do it with me. And I was like, all right, you know, it's good. But somewhere along the line, then he had a change of heart. And then he called me and threatened to kill me. <laughs> well, that's the whole thing. <laughs> There, there's this whole thing where his 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 like early senality made him villainize some of the people that were always on his side. Me and Richie yeah. Crush talk about it often, and it kind of did put a sour note to the whole thing because as bizarre as Twenty Five to Life is from an outsider point of view, you have this dude completely covered in fucking dreadlocks, and you guys, you're like the genuine article Twenty Five to Life, really was an imposing band. Like, I don't know if you see it that way, because how old were you in 2000 uh, when you said you were 13 and 86? Yeah. So you're 22 and 95. Right, right. So you're 22, but like you, Warren, Fred, like you guys all look like grown men now. So we're like, damn, this fucking band's fucking hard. And it, it, the band had everyone behind them. I think 25 Life was one of them bands where everybody stood on the side of the stage. Like everybody knew all the words. There was something imposing about 25 to Life. And then as he lost the people that were around him, like I was me and Dom kid around from um, who was in integrity and did all this stuff with a three, eight, nine records, the guy from Baltimore who was in day of morning. Anyone could be in 25 to life. Cause Rick to life would just show up like, Hey, we're doing a show. Can you guys jump in? And it really watered down what was one of the most potent bands of the mid nineties. Yeah. And no, I absolutely agree. You know, and that was one of the arguments you know, Rick would book some shows and there was some shows that, that I would tell him I couldn't make, you know, and when I couldn't make them, he would just get a fill in. And um, one of the one of the things was and one of the things that turned me off about being in the band is I, I vividly remember him telling me, you know what, nobody cares who's playing behind me. You know, and uh, being that that I had already been in bands and I had been doing it longer than him. I mean, that's a fact. I said, well, you know what? Screw you, dude. <laughs> You know what I mean? If it doesn't matter, then then you could have the band. Um, you know, to me, I took it as an offense. He might have thought it was funny. But to me, I said, well, then you think it's your your thing, you know, your show. And some people might feel that way, that it was completely him. But you got to remember, we wrote the music. Yeah, well, and that's the thing. I think once Fred was out of the picture, I know he had different European guys and, and and some bands do that. Some bands are easier to travel and have different guys, Yeah. but really, I, and I'm telling you, I still have the fucking hood. I still have hoodies from 25 to life from when I was a kid. Like I was the, uh, there, I don't know if you ever know this. There was a moment in hardcore. Cause you know, the older Philly dudes that were kind of more of the posi people, they called like 25 to life and three or five. Oh, that's Joe hardcore, hardcore. Uh. <laughs> because I was 17 booking 25 to life, you know, yeah. like, that wasn't like what the what at the time what was Philly hardcore like that's not accepted. That's Joe hardcore hardcore. That's not even like the you know because it was newer if you think about it compared to yeah. the goofy shit that the, was cool. And so I, I take I took it seriously. Like man, like fuck, I can't believe Rick's just like wearing this shit down to the point where in oh in oh six like yo how come you're doing a fest and we're not playing? I'm like 
dude, it's not the real band. Like, it's not like kids aren't even. And I said, you can come and sell merch anytime you want. And 08, he came out, he sold merch. Uh, AF played the uh, AF played the year before, and he's on stage, like, yeah, that's fucking great. And then the next year, he sold his merch all three days. And on the Sunday, we had a friend stand and sit down, and we put a large trash bag over him next to the Rick merch. And when he came in in the morning, he jumped out of the trash bag. And was uh, like, oh, my God. Are you like, it was fun. Like, we had a good time. And a year later, he was threatening everybody and calling people on the telephone and completely just wiped it out like the, you know, like. And I always thought, like, hey, man, one day Rick Delay's going to get, and until he had all the crazy shit, I one day I really thought, like, Rick's going to get back together with 25 to Life and hopefully kids will like it. So it was fucking to me, like, I was very invested in you guys like this. I don't care if sick man's fucking doing it. Like kids need to see what 25 to life is. And I definitely think you guys brought back what was the real genuine article. It was like the fucking, like, it wasn't like, Oh, this is cover band. This was like, Holy fuck. Look at fucking beta fucking stick man on stage. Like that was fucking sick. Yeah, to me. That, that's what we were trying to do. And you know, like with Rick, like I, I told Rick, like, you know, while we were working on the, the reunion with stick man, I told Rick, I said, listen, man, if you know, if you do right by people, hopefully we could do it with you one day, you know, but one thing you got to do is, you know, I, I told him to, to explain, cause he really has a mental illness issue. Absolutely. Absolutely. Has a mental, he's definitely mentally ill, but I said, you know, you, you need to explain to people what's going on with you because right now people just think that you're just being a jerk. You know well, it becomes indefensible where he gets it. Like he he'll have moments of where real insanity takes place. Right. And then there's him, you know, like, uh, he has always been the guy who will be someone's friend, and then behind, like, well, fuck this motherfucker. Like he has a, he's always had that turn on a dime ability to say something crazy. We had a in California when he did the Come and Correct tour, he only was able to do Come and Correct because Dysphoria, Judd, the guitar player, was filling in for Come and Correct, and I used to jump in his car. We would go, um, he would play in Come and Correct. I would drive with him, and we go do like go on the East Coast and say, oh, this is fucking fun. We get to hang out. When Dysphoria got told, hey, come and correct doing a West Coast tour, Chris is like, well, I guess you're going to need a fucking band, aren't you? And, and Rick's like, yeah. He's like, well, we'll be most of your fucking band. Like, we'll do it. But then when the shows Rick was setting together weren't coming together, and we didn't know until we are in California, Chris is like calling people, hey, can I jump on this? And we're outside, and uh, there was a show that was canceled in West Canoga Park. And my buddy, RIP to Sammy the Mick from uh, the Bay Area, his band, all bets off was down there. They kind of stepped to us like, yo, you guys are booking shows without us. And we're like, yo, we're coming out here from fucking Pennsylvania. We drove here. You live here. Rick flew out with our buddy, you know, Chris Cap from fucking right. release. Chris Cap, he was a drummer. Was Chris Cap, the drummer and, and the bass player and the guitar player from Dysphoria and Rick. And the first practice was 25 minutes before doors at Gilman Street for the first West Coast show that Dysphoria was on. So Dysphoria is the reason why Rick could do this coming correct tour we get three days later into California and this fucking, you go to the door of the show. There's no fucking flyer. There's no fucking show. Chris, you, I know, you know, Chris, that motherfucker books shows all over the country by himself. So he's going, I'm setting this shit up. And Rick's like, well, you better fucking. And we're like, yo, fuck you, man. Like Rick, like you fuck <laughs> this up. This is your tour. Right, and right. it was like, well, uh, uh, and by the end of the day, we're all laughing, having fun, but he has that switch in him. You're not fucking ripping me off. It's like, you ripped us off, motherfucker. We're fucking missing a show. What are you talking about? Yeah, it's gonna be and ended up being two shows. We had the off that night, and then the next night, thank God, um, we were cool with the nerve agents, dudes. So uh 25 to life or a coming correct and just for you jumped on a nerve agent show. 
Otherwise, we'd had two on a Thursday and a Friday night in the West Coast of no fucking shows. But yeah. I watched that happen immediately go from being like, we're all friends. Fuck you. And what's up? And it's like, oh, fuck you, man. Yeah, once he convinces himself of something, even even if it's not real, even if it's fantasy to, to him, it's it's real as hell. You know, I mean, I, I've, I've seen that happen. I mean, this guy, our first tour, our first tour in Europe, I remember he kicked the tour manager in the face because he was convinced that the guy was robbing him. Meanwhile, the guy Jesus. was counting the money. The guy was counting the money in the bus. It's like, listen, the guy went to the bus, find a quiet area to do his business. And you you kicked him in the face because you're convinced that he's doing wrong when he's just doing his job. Now, it's it's a it's a it's a bitter pill. But I really do think that he had to swallow it. And the reaction was great. I mean, you guys even came back and did a show with Hoods after that, which is even fucking, I think, even cooler. Yes. Man. Like, yeah, that was a good show. bro. Like I, I, in general, I know it's 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 weird to harp on these things, but. You guys did paint a legacy. And the kids today, like, I wish you guys would have been have the forthright information to save some of these crazy rich life designs because kids now are buying like twenty five to life shirts that Rick printed on weird flea market shirts for like hundreds of dollars, and you're like, what the fuck? How is this even happening? Yeah, man, it, it's um, you know, it, it's 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 sad that I feel he ruined the legacy. You well, know, he did because there's going to be people that'll never. I mean, if he were to play a show. It's drama. It's beef. There's a line down the street of people like, "Hey, remember you said this to me, or you said this about me." Well, he said some some unforgivable things to some friends of ours that uh, you know it's at a point where it's just unforgivable. You know, what I mean, he he knows what it what it is and what he said, and you know, um, there's no going back. I mean, there, there's just some some things you just don't say, and he said it, and I understand some of it is mental illness. You know what I mean? Um, but. I, at least not not that you would be forgiven, but at least explain that to people. Um, not that it makes it right, but it's a lot better than just, hey, I'm I'm being a dick and this is what I mean. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> so uh, it's awesome to hear that this hardcore 2017 is the catalyst to get Kate and Rowan, but where does this Beto story go? Like, where do you like you go from 25 to life again, you're back in the fatherhood role. And then obviously because we're friends, I see you all the time. You can, it becomes like a family <laughs> trip. You're now that like, you like, you were the proud parents to watch your kids play this argument. You're the proud parent when the records come out, like how surreal is it to you now that you know that you've now birthed a second generation of hardcore. It's awesome, man. And you know, what's awesome is, is you know, it's, it's wild to me. Cause like, you know, I'll sit here while I'm working and I hear him playing the guitar and um, he's definitely got a better rhythm hand than I do now, <laughs> which yeah. is damn cool. You know, um, like it's one of those things where like, I never forced it on him. I'm super happy that he found it. Um, I, you know, there's some dads that are like baseball dads or, you know, soccer dads or football dads. I'm none of those. I mean, you know, what I do best is music, you know, and what I have to offer my, my kids is, is music. And I didn't force it down him, but he picked up on it and he, you know, and he enjoys it. He listens to it all the time. I know he doesn't listen to it because of me, because he's listening to it all the time and playing that guitar every single day. Um, it's definitely something that, that I'm proud of, but you know, even if, even if he was into freaking polka music, I'd be proud of him, <laughs> you know, whatever it is. What do you think as a, as a human, what do you think parenthood has taught you? Parenthood, you know, I don't know if it's parenthood or what, but I, I feel um, 
one thing I'll say, and like, you know, almost like going back to, to, to the Rick thing. And I don't know if this is from being a parent. I feel that I understand people better, you know, and I don't know if that's from having kids or if that's from being older. Um, you know, you, you got, you know, I'll, I'll see, you know, I've, I've got a son that, that has ADHD, you know, I'll see, I'll see friends of mine and I'll be like, oh man, that, that's what this guy has. And that's why he used to do the things he does. Um, I, it's, you know, not just that, but in a lot of things, I feel that, and maybe yes, having a kid, you see your kids growing up and you begin to understand people that you grew up with. You begin to understand different personalities and uh, it, it has made me definitely more understanding and tolerable. I'll say that. Yeah, I was wondering what kind of parent your father was and if that had an impact or not in it. My father, you know, my father was a good dad, but he really um I was more more raised by my mom, you know what I'm saying? Like my father was always busy working. Yeah, I know the uh I have a lot of friends who are Dominican and Puerto Rican and they're like, "Look, my dad worked." Yeah. You know what my dad did? He fucking worked. Yeah. He had a break, you know, like he had to fucking work, but mom was the one who held the house down. Exactly. Yeah. He was, he was busy working. And, you know, I remember my dad coming home at like sometimes like midnight, you know, and, and then I'd see him for like a little bit and that was it. So, you know, m most of, mostly I, I would say I was raised by my mom because she was a stay at home mom. And, um, you know, from her, you, you know, if anything, uh, it, it's, it's tough to say what I picked up from my parents, <laughs> as weird as that says. As it, I feel like the the person that I I became, I became more from experience, from life experience, you know. Is there anything that you ever dreaded that you did that your sons uh, or in general would uh, come across and want to emulate? Huh. Well, <laughs> I'm sure some things I wouldn't want to say. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, but. Uh, Ah, oh, man. I mean, you know, the, the tough one was, I, I would say, um, you know, smoking cigarettes came up one time. And, uh, you know, I knew my kids were wondering about it, say, Dad, you ever smoked? And I didn't want to lie to them. You know, I told them straight up, I was a two and a half pack a day smoker. <laughs> you know, and I told them, don't ever do it, you know, um, things like that. And, uh, you know, I, I I try to tell my kids too to stay away from street beef, you know, stuff like, you know, Especially in these day and age, man, these kids don't fight. Nah, and, and you know how it is, Joe. It's never ending, dude. You you know you 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 retaliate, and somebody's got to retaliate harder, and it, it is like, where does it end? No, nah, I think I think if that's the that's the usually the core of what goes on now, and I don't think that the kids today could handle what we did then, but I also don't think our streets were their streets now, where the slightest imposition of any kind of offense and it's a gun pulled out yeah no absolutely it's like to pull a gun out was you had to be the craziest son of a bitch in the whole fucking world like you 70 sam level fucking nuts yeah or it had to be a level of beef that you were like oh we're really there like i mean you've seen it and then you've seen it in philly shows when we had the beefs with the nazis and they're pulling guns they were like all right i guess we're fucking this is what it is like you were that you you've been at these shows you know yeah, because you got you got the guys that'll pull out the gun for for rep to look crazy. And then you got the guys that'll pull it out out of fear because they want to try to stop the situation. But once, you know, once you get to that level and you pull it out, you you know, they're going to they're going to press you to use it. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah. So it, it's like one of those situations. But, yeah, I feel like a lot of kids put themselves in that situation these days. 
And, and it's, it's screwed up, man, because it's, that's a life changer for both sides. You know what I mean? I think for me, when I think about the, the entire spectrum of what we've talked about here, I wonder most if there's stuff that you feel that you still have to do besides just be a dad. Like, are you thinking like, I want to do music? Like, do you, is there stuff that you wanted to do with demise? Like what, like what is left unwritten for you? I would say um, a real demise reunion. Yeah. That, that, that's something that I think I want to see. I want to do. And I think a lot of people want to see, you know, I, I would, um, it's, uh, when, when we stopped playing, we never really said we broke up, you know, we kind of just stopped playing. But, uh, I think that today, these days, the band's probably more relevant than it probably was even back in the day. So it would be a cool thing to, I, I would like to say before I hang it up, I'd like to do that at least once. How close do you think that would ever be to coming? Is it just like one or two guys or is it just like the timing of when man balls off or like, what do you think really is the, the, the walls to get that uh, going? I, uh, I, I, you know, it, it's tough. I think that it could happen, but to get it to be all full members is, uh, is, is, uh, could be the issue. You know, I don't know how, I don't know what the possibility of doing it that way, but that, that would be a great way. I know one of the members can't do it physically can't do it anymore. Um, so he's definitely out of it, but there's four of us that should be able to do it and hopefully it'll happen. And, uh, I think I would say, I don't know, maybe 75% chance that it'll happen someday. I think that it's gotta be surreal for you. And I said, this is Scadato as well to be where you're at in your life and to think about 18 and 19 year old kids loving music that you created 30 years ago. Oh, no, dude, it's amazing, man. And, and, you know, the craziest thing to me is to, to hear what we did back then and then hear what's being done now and seeing that it's kind of like coming back, you know, it, it's the music is beginning to sound like what we were doing in the late eighties, early nineties, all over again, but just a lot better because these kids are, they're better skilled than we were back in the day. You know what I mean? Why? Well, exactly. I think the kids now there was actually a weird thing. What were, what was rich doing to make some of them drum? Like they were really, really percussive driven. Some of these rhythms, like way more busy. Oh, Richie, I, I, Richie yeah. was well, Dave Lombardo with ADHD. So he was, cause I, I was thinking about it and I, and cause you brought up soul search. The first time I hear you, it starts off with the drum, but he's a lot busier than a lot of drummers of that oh, time. Well, that's you, Jonathan. But oh, that's Jonathan. Okay. Yeah. That's Jonathan. Um, he had a weird drumming style. Um, Jonathan almost like, like when, when, when I hear the way he rocks the snare, almost like a marching guy. <laughs> yeah, that, well, that's what I was asking you because there is a lot of drummers that have that cadence from marching band. Was that something he picked up, or is that like was that inflicted on him? Like, how did how did you did you guys like hear him and go, oh shit? I, he's know, I to never I never asked him, but he, I figure that he might have done it and he might have learned how to do it in school. All I remember is you know Jonathan, we met through Saab. And I remember Saab just telling us, he says, you know, when you guys jam out with this guy, you're going to love him. You're going to love the way he plays. Because I guess he was, he had a project. I could be wrong, but I think it was with Saab. 
and Rich O'Brien called Undertaker. So those guys had that before um, Jonathan was in demise. And, uh, you know, Richie, Richie was cool. You know, the original drummer, Richie was good, but Jonathan was a completely different style. And it's weird because you hear Soul Search, it sounds like a metal drummer, but it doesn't. You know what I mean? It was a unique style. I don't yeah. think that it would have sounded as good with anybody else. The guy who played drums in Diecast early on for the first couple of records was a marching band drummer at first. So he had that one hand that was sideways and he did a lot of weird percussive stuff too. That's why I was asking about that. Yeah. And it, that's what, that's what it sounds like, man. And one day, you know, I still talk to Jonathan. I'm going to have to ask him. <laughs> yeah. It was fucking, um, did, is there anything that we should be besides, uh, telling everybody to make sure that since you're not currently active to make sure everyone's, uh, repping, reaching out. <laughs> Definitely, man. Everybody's got a rep reaching out and, uh, and, and, you know, I got to ask him. Caden, are we allowed to mention your new band? Oh, shit. The kid's got another band. Caden, are we allowed to mention your new band? Yeah. Yeah, that uh, <laughs> Uh-oh, uh-oh, here he comes. Yeah, he jump comes. in on it. Here he comes. What's good, man? Your, your new band. Tell me what your new Tell band me, this is. This is the wrap-up part. What's up with the new band? Um... I think we're going to do a set tomorrow at that Fool's Game show in Delaware that Andrew booked. But Fuck, I've been saying about the media show. I forgot they're doing the Delaware show, too. This fucking Fool's yeah. Game will play anything. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Fuck. But it's um, it's uh, me and the drummer from Reaching Out and then the singer for Killing Me and then Andrew. Yo, uh, yeah. did his voice just drop, like, in a summer? This guy? Yeah, this is a yeah. deep oh, motherfucking yeah, yeah. voice. Yeah, he's hairier than me too. <laughs> yeah, and 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 uh, our friend Alex from Brooklyn. So everybody's from everywhere, but it sounds okay. like um, it's I don't know. It's like evil music. It's hard. It's hard. Yeah. What's the name of the band? Uh, Discontent. There you so go. I like this. Yeah, yeah. Keeping it alive, brother. Yeah. <laughs> well, yo, thank you, man, for coming on the show. Yeah, anytime, brother. I gotta, I gotta head down there and hang out, man. Come, we'll get some food. Hell yeah, dude. Um, do you want me to tag your social medias or anything like that, or just want me to just? Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. Yeah. All right, so we'll put on the show that uh, the social media. I, I, I honestly, we've been friends a long time, and I love if me and you get together, it's three hours of talking and maybe watching some of the bands. So it's a good time. Yeah. And I really wanted to put this into show format. I've been saying I gotta get you on the show. I gotta get you on the show. Yeah. Um. Just thank you for the time and thank you for everything you did. And I just, I really appreciate the impact that you've had on hardcore. And um, I look forward to you getting back to doing demise. I got to, I got to, I also got to see it. That'd be awesome. Thanks brother. Hey, listen, I'm, I'm thankful for the impact you've had too, man. I mean, what you've done in Philly is damn impressive. And whenever I go to any other state, I always say, damn, Joe does it better. Blame, blame, Blame your band 25 to life because there was a moment where I didn't think anybody wanted to see them kind of band. So I'm like, fuck it. I guess I got to book them. That's really what it started with. Dude. Thank you so much. Thanks brother. Take care. Take care. I don't know, man. It, it, hopefully we keep these going. Cause last couple of weeks have been some fucking great interviews. Some awesome shit. A lot of throwing back to the old days. I know we're going to have some of these young boys on here. Some of these young bloods back in their mix, but there's something special about going back with someone because they're going to have a perspective that's a little bit different than 
the young kids now. You know, it's good to look back, you know, whether it's, you know, Dan Nastasia and Mucky Pup and the Doggy Dog or John Scadano on the whole rise of the Brooklyn into the metallic hardcore stuff, you know, or Andrew Klein and the rise of strife and everything going on in Southern California to everything that Beto just touched on. Absolutely fucking fantastic. Was very excited for this one. And I hope that you enjoyed it. I'll keep this short. Make sure you're going to TIAC Podcast to, to get all the show links and all the pertinent information. Uh, again, real quickly, because this is coming up next week, three shows in a row. June 22nd is Bonk's Bar with Bankrupt reaching out, 10 songs, last dose. Friday is Incendiary, Volcano, Simulacra, Scarab. Saturday afternoon, Bulldoze, Shattered Realm, Freight Train, Bayway, One by One, All Shall Suffer, Shot Out from Philadelphia, and a slew of other shows. Go to phcshows.com or phcshows on Instagram and Twitter, T-I-H-C Podcast, or you can go to This Is Hardcore Fest on Instagram, T-I-H-C Fest on Twitter, and This Is Hardcore Fest. We still have tickets August 5 and 6. Friday's completely sold out. The two-day tickets are going. Don't fucking sleep on this one. It's going to be a great fucking week and I will have a full fucking report from the Bane show because I'm going to the Bane show so maybe we'll have some cool shit about that alright brother take care later